Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Happy Halloween, trick-or-treaters, dreamers, campers, suspects, and yes, deadites. Michael Maniac Ash Rothman here with a little context for today's episode, or should I say drop? So about two years ago, we started our own Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Halloweeniespod. And you've probably heard us plugging it in episodes, and you've likely by now seen all the clips of our content in the feed. Um, Well, it's been going great, or at least I think so. Uh, In the last two years, we've recorded two dozen commentary tracks, one of which Jaws you saw last month. Uh, In addition to that, we've also given our signature dissection to some of the greatest and most iconic horror rentals of all time, and we call them Shocker (laughs) Rentals. So uh, as we enter spooky season, and don't forget, August 5th, the release date for Halloween H2O, is officially the beginning of spooky season. If Dimension Films thought it was okay to release Halloween H2O in August, then we should feel okay to celebrate it in August too. Uh, Anyway, we thought because of that, we'd unlock one of our rentals as an early Halloween treat. And since the first episode we did, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark, also turns 35 this year, I don't know, we thought it made sense. And it's a killer episode too, with uh, Daily Dead's Heather Wixon joining the gang at the proverbial bar. So uh, enjoy this episode. And if you like this episode and you want more of these type of episodes, we have dozens of other rentals in the rewind. Uh, We got stuff on Saw. We got one on The Conjuring. Uh, We have a huge official (laughs) uh, essential uh, dissection of Nightbreed. Um, we've done ones on the changeling poltergeist. I mean, you can find a million in there, not a million, but you know, at least two dozen. So you can find them all by becoming a member of our Patreon, the rewind. Uh, and you can find a link in the description of this episode, or you can just go to www.patreon.com slash Halloweenies pod. Lots of content, lots of memories, <laughs> Papa John's. Uh, anyway, hope to see you there so we can give you one more scare. Damn son. Look all of these monsters! Come on, all of you monsters, out of here! Everyone, out of this room! Come ah, ah. You, on the bed! Come on, out, out, take a hike! There we go. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to The Rental, an episode that is beaming through your headphones because you, yes, you, decided that you wanted more Halloweenies and gang you are getting more Halloweenies. Thank you again for subscribing to our Patreon page. It means a lot to everybody here. We see that uh, a, a good number of you have subscribed, and we don't even have a library yet for you to go back and listen <laughs> to anything. So your faith in us is wonderful, and we, and we do plan on delivering the goods over the next, oh, who knows, rest of our lives, hopefully. Uh, for this episode of The Rental, we'll be diving into Catherine Bigelow's 80s horror excursion into the vampire slash Western genre with 1987's Near Dark. But before we do that, let's go around the Skypeline to discuss the first time that we remember hearing about or seeing Near Dark for the first time and where this movie falls amongst our favorite vampire movies. Let's start off in the dirty south, as some call it, with... Uh, This is Dan Diamondback Caffrey. Um, Mm. 
I, yeah, hey, I had to. I'm in the South. I don't know if there's Diamondback. There's probably Diamondback, more Diamondbacks in Texas, I think, than in Georgia. But I don't know. Maybe there's Diamondbacks here. Who knows? Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I always tell the same story whenever I talk about being introduced to any horror movie on this podcast or the Losers Club. But uh, yeah, it was for my dad. Um, when I was eight or nine, we used to, every Friday night, we would rent, he would rent two different movies that I hadn't seen um, and show them to me. And I remember one time we did Stand By Me in the Abyss back to back. Mm. And he did that for Near Dark, but I don't remember what the other movie was uh, that we watched, which means Near Dark must have eclipsed it. I love this movie. It's funny. I hadn't watched it in a few years. I rewatched it for this, and I don't know. I I don't want to call it my favorite vampire movie because I still think I have a soft spot for uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, (laughs) even though a lot of people hate that movie. Um, But, man, it is up there. It feels totally unique to me. I feel like it was doing the Western hybridization before that was even a thing. You know, like the Western that's not quite called a Western. Um, mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about this. Uh, the I had seen Aliens at that point, so it was really cool to me seeing Lance Henriksen, Jeanette Goldstein, and Bill Paxton in this. Um, yeah, I, I think I was at, at the age where I was starting to see connections between certain movies of, oh, yeah, certain actors get used by uh, certain directors or certain producers, and all of it is connected in some kind of way. So have nothing but love for near dark and I'm super excited to talk about it today. That's great. Well, we've got somebody who shares uh, this movie's all about blood. So let's go to somebody who shares my blood. Oh, this is Mackenzie the Mosquito Gerber. And I saw what's it? No, no last of the mosquito. Okay. All right. You know, it's only the first shot of the movie, but okay. I chuckled. Uh, no. <laughs> I didn't want to mess up the audio the audio quality. I was trying to be good. <laughs> Ultimately, uh, I saw I just remember seeing the VHS cover for this, which was like, you know, them on the horizon and then you have Jesse and Severin and Diamondback like just like at the forefront. And being very interested i always just remember keying in on the fact that you know like oh that's bishop and that's you know (laughs) i just i just remember that only um but i didn't we didn't rent it for a while i mean justin's gonna have the same story i believe we saw this together i i'm pretty sure uh but uh i was really 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 into vampires when i was a kid and so I was just kind of eat, trying to eat up anything that I could get my hands on. I had already seen Lost Boys and all these other greats, uh, Fright Night and whatnot. And I really was just so surprised by f- watching this. I was just like, wow, this is so good. And how come no one talks about this movie? Um, but yeah, that was my first outing. I, I would say this is this is definitely up there for me. It's definitely in my top... My top... <sighs> 10 vampire films. So wait a minute. How many vampire films are in I there? I want to say it's higher, but you know, we've got to really go through the vampire. Canon, well, you got the, you know? the twilight quintology. <laughs> yeah. Hey, wait, then, Mac, this VHS box didn't have hole. They all had bullet holes in them, right? Like there, there was like yeah, sunlight like shining the through the bullet holes. Through, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So a little misleading, but all right. Well, we also have a very special guest. We have a special guest on this episode and let's hear from this person. Hello, everybody. I am Heather Wixon. Uh, I am the managing editor for DailyDead.com. I also co-host Corpse Club over there. Uh, I've been working for the last few years on some books for special effects artists. Um, So I'm kind of everywhere. Um, Near Dark is definitely a vampire movie that's like near and dear to my heart. Uh, I am a huge sucker, if you will, uh, for all vampire (laughs) movies. (laughs) Good, I got to laugh. You just guys did that to be polite. I get it. It's okay. (laughs) That's all of our jokes. (laughs) 
<laughs> get ready for some. Yeah, no, that's very much in line with our, our sense of I'm, I'm very much about dad jokes, so this yes. is going to go You're well. You're going to fit right in on this podcast, trust me. Excellent. Um, but yeah, I rented Near Dark when I was younger. It was probably like, I want to say like 88, maybe early 89. Um, my best friend and I we used to rent pretty much any and every horror movie that we could. Um, and I, it's interesting, as a kid, like... Because coming off of like movies like Fright Night and Lost Boys and even like the traditional Dracula movies, I don't know that I necessarily quote unquote got near dark when I was a kid, mm-hmm. um, but I knew I was completely entranced by it. And I knew that there was something that I, I liked about it. Um, as I got older, obviously, and the more time I spent with it, I absolutely fell in love with it. And I definitely would put it in like my top five vampire movies. Um, it's it's tough for me to pick my favorites, but uh, I would definitely say Near Dark is, is right up there. And I think the thing that really hooked me in when I was a kid to it was actually Jenny Wright, because I had just seen St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, and she's in that with Rob Lowe as like his, his girlfriend who has the baby and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of like between her and Lance Henriksen, because of course, you know, aliens, um, that they, they were sort of the, the appeal to me. Um, and it just, it, it really stood out. Like it, it's, you know, and I obviously we'll talk about that, but it's, it's definitely sort of, I would call it the, the first anti-vampire movie that we ever saw. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why it's a standout. You stole so much of what I wanted to say. I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, but, Make no, it I, up, I agree Justin. with you on everything you're saying about this being this kind of... It's more than just a twist on vampire lore, you know? I should probably introduce myself. I am uh, Justin Jesse Gerber. Sure, to Jay. Ah. Um, I, can, I vividly remember renting this, not from a blockbuster, but from a place called First Run Video in Hunters That's Creek right. in Orlando, Florida a place that, of course, became Blockbuster Video because that took over everything over time. And the owner of this small video store was Mike Golick. Now, some of you uh, ESPN fans might know that name from Mike and Mike <laughs> in the Morning. This is before he was a uh, sports DJ, DJ. And, might I add, his brother Bob Golick was on Say by the Bell the College Years. So, mm. unfortunately, never <laughs> was ran he. To Bob. Was he the? Was he like the big cool teacher with the long hair? Yeah, on he was the. Re- well, he was like he was the resident uh, resident advisor. Oh, oh no wow. way! Was he, a, was he a football player in your life or something? Or? He was. He and his brother. Look, they both played. Looks like it. Played uh, football. So yeah, they're built. Anyway, back to near dark. I um, <laughs> yeah, I've I've always had fond memories of this, and and like you said though, Heather, I, I always enjoyed it. I, of course, the Bill Paxton scene as a as a kid really stands out, right? The, the big bar scene. But it wasn't until I grew a little older where I really began to appreciate not just the subtext, but just kind of the tone itself of the movie. And this latest rewatch, I haven't, I haven't seen this movie in, in well over a decade. And this latest rewatch really got to me, this, this go around. I'm really looking forward to talking about it. There's just a lot to, to go into besides, obviously, some iconic scenes. I should also say that my favorite vampire movie of all time, this might be a controversial choice. I'm going to have to go with uh, Fright Night. Directed by Tom Holland. If if it makes and, you uh, feel any better, I'm I'm staring at a Peter Vincent action figure on my desk right now. Ooh, oh, uh, yes. the great Roddy McDowell. I mean, what can I say? I I go back to Friday Night all the time, and I, I and I know Jerry Dandridge isn't technically Dracula, but that would probably also be my favorite Dracula of all time. So there it is, Friday Night. But Near Dark is definitely way up there for me. Yeah, this might be controversial too. I'm not a huge fan of Todd Browning's Dracula. 
I know everybody just turned off their computers. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that, man. It's pretty boring. And um, I actually don't like that archetypal portrayal of Dracula, the, the sort of suave Eastern European gentleman kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm rewatching a lot of those Universal movies, and uh, Dracula is not, not my favorite. And it's nothing against Universal Horror back then because I love, you know, I love The Invisible Man, oh, I love The Wolfman, you know, creature. it's just something about that. Maybe you have to rewatch it again. You know, these things always change over time, too. Nothing is, is set in stone. Okay, well, anyway, let's just move on from that. <laughs> so let's move on to our next category, which is called Back of the Box. The Box. You opened it. We came. is a means to summon us. Who are you? Okay, so for back of the box, we're just going to discuss, you know, the behind the scenes of Near Dark, uh, how it got made, what, what, what movies were going around around that time, and of course, we're going to discuss who wrote this and who directed it and what uh, they really gave to this movie. So let's give you a little bit of a history. Around the time of Near Dark, uh, vampires were very much in vogue, as Heather had kind of pointed out. Now, we're talking about vampires, not Dracula, because these movies were nothing like Bram Stoker's novel, neither time or place. These new takes, they were very modern, and many were amplified by you know pop soundtracks and eye-popping color schemes. You had Joel Schumacher's Lost Boys, which actually arrived in theaters earlier that same year as Near Dark. Big hit. A couple years before that, we had Fright Night, like we mentioned. Uh, Vamp, starring Grace Jones, Tony Scott's The Hunger. They were all the rage. Westerns were not all the rage at this time. Uh... Clint Eastwood had long since abandoned his man with no name for a man by the name of Dirty Harry. Sergio Leone went from the spaghetti westerns of Once Upon a Time in the West to straight up spaghetti in Once Upon a Time in America. And while Walter Hill's The Long Riders and Lawrence Kasdan's Silverado have their fans, they weren't trendsetters by any means. If I told anybody that I memorized all that, would anybody believe me? Uh, no. I appreciate your candor. However, filmmaker Catherine Bigelow and screenwriter Eric Redd, had they been circling each other for a little while? And they really respected each other's work over the years and decided to collaborate on a movie that would buck the trends of vampire movies that came before and fuse it with the classic Western, as we discussed. So they wrote Near Dark on spec. And Catherine Bigelow said that they gave it to the producers on a Thursday and they were given the green light on a Monday. So they were pretty confident in the movie. Unfortunately, um, as we all saw when the movie started, Near Dark was released by the studio DEG. Now, Dino. Dino De Laurentiis himself, the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, and uh, I'm sure listeners of the Losers Club know exactly how much Dino has to do with Stephen King movies during that time. And funny enough, uh, Mike Vanderbilt and I spoke to Jason Lives director Tom McLaughlin just a week or so ago, and he also discussed this group and what was going on around the time of Near Dark, because his movie, Day with an Angel, was also due to come around, to, to come out around this time. But unfortunately, the company was just about to go out of business. So between some mismanaged posters, some had said, and the bottom line that they couldn't really promote the movie, Near Dark just totally flamed out at the box office. Even though it did get a lot of good reviews, it didn't resonate at all. And it's really, again, special thanks to home video and, and whatnot that really built this great cult audience over the years. So uh, thank you for listening to our episode of 1987's Near Dark. <laughs> That's your basic history, and please, everybody here, feel free to, to jump in, add anything I, I left off with the cliff notes. But let's talk about the director of this freaking movie. Mm. And that director is uh, one of the best, especially from this era. Her name is Catherine Bigelow. Now, at this time, the only movie she had made is a movie called The Loveless, which I have not seen. Has anybody here seen The Loveless? No. 
I have, I don't think I have actually. Um, I tried to rent it once, like way back when like Netflix was like a disc only company and it was like on the queue and it was like, I was just waiting for it to come in and it just never did. It's funny because I feel like when Netflix first came out, they literally had every movie ever made. I swear there's movies that I used to check out from them on disc that just you can't find anywhere at all, even to rent on streaming services. So, Well, dude, even Near Dark's like that. I mean, I had to, full disclosure, yeah. no one arrest me, but um, I would have gladly rented the movie or streamed it somewhere, but you, you cannot. I mean, I guess the only way to get it would be to buy the DVD at used somewhere. And um, yeah, I had to go th- to one of those like crappy TV duck type sites where you... you you have to click on it three times to get an ad before it starts streaming. You can't pause it or anything because it'll start over. Um, I don't know if the rest of you had that experience, but yeah, I could not well, find this movie well, to stream anywhere. What I had to do was I actually borrowed it from fellow Halloweeny Mike Rothman. On, he had an old DVD of it. Nice. And I had, so I walked you know, 45 minutes to get to his apartment. <laughs> I <laughs> thankfully, walked oh, 45 minutes back. I thankfully had the, uh, the Twilight, Twilightization version of the Blu-ray <sighs> that came out years oh. ago. Um, oh yes, yeah. we'll talk yes. about that. <laughs> um, so thankfully, I'd always held on to that. I mean, I would have never gotten rid of it anyway. Um, although now I realize, like in these desperate times, I was like, "Hmm, I could probably sell that and make a good, good buck right now." Um, but yeah, <laughs> thankfully, I still had my Blu-ray, so I was I was very fortunate in that. But actually, uh, I used to have the VHS of it, um, and I don't know that I ever had the DVD to be honest. But uh, I, I, it was one of those like when it came out, and I don't know why Lionsgate only maybe. I think they only pressed like like three thousand copies or something ridiculous like that. Um, but yeah, they kind of came and went really fast. Yeah, Lionsgate as a distribution service is wild. So, yeah, yeah Mac, I didn't the, you have one of those? You had like one with a documentary on it. I remember you telling me years yeah, ago about I had that. The it's kind of like a almost like a, like a neon looking cover. Um, it was like a double. I think it was like a double disc. I might be lying about that, but it had like a slip case to it, and it was it was very nice. And yes, it did have kind of like a documentary. I'm not sure if that's available on YouTube. It might be. Justin, did you find anything like that on YouTube when you were looking? Uh, I found a great interview with Catherine Bigelow that I definitely included uh, in these notes here. But it's funny, okay. Heather, you mentioned that Blu-ray. That Blu-ray is now available for like ninety dollars <laughs> on Amazon. I mean, it's impossible to even like buy this used for any decent price right now. It's crazy. It's basically hence that forty-five. Yeah, I was gonna say it's basically like my uh, my retirement fund is just holding on to that into the Dawn of the Dead Blu-rays, just waiting for my time. Although <laughs> yes. now we're getting a new Blu-ray for Dawn of the Dead, so I might as well pull that trigger pretty soon. Yeah, do it now. Say so just and advertise it as you'll never see this movie again if you don't rent yeah. it now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they'll never reissue it. Trust us, they'll never reissue Don the Dead. Um, but obviously, Catherine Bigelow, after this, she went on to do a Point Break. She went on to do just some movie that she became the only woman female, the only woman director to win Best Director for, which is called The Hurt Locker. Uh, she did Detroit recently. Uh, and one of my favorites, Strange Days. So really good. good movie. Love Strange Days. You're missing K-19, the, the Widowmaker. Uh, I was going to say. Zero Dark Thirty. coming at Zero the Dark. end there with Zero. K-19, which is oddly just titled <laughs> The Widowmaker <laughs> on IMDb for some reason. Well, it's kind of like they retitled it, um, what, Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, and they retitled Edge of Tomorrow. Was it Live, <laughs> Die, Thirst, Repeat, or something yeah. like that? Was it? Bless their hearts. Yeah, I was, um, it's interesting to me because I guess it didn't dawn on me when I was a kid watching this, like, how monumental it was to see a woman directing a horror film. Because I think at that point, I think the only other movie that I'd really seen that a female had directed uh, was Slumber Party Massacre. 
Uh, and again, that really yeah. didn't even dawn on me back then. Um, but I was a I, I still am a huge Catherine Bigelow fan. If you follow me on social media, I probably prattle on about Point Break at least once a week. Um, it's like one of my, it, it is like probably the ultimate movie for me. Um, and I think there's something really interesting. Um, if you look through her filmography, the way that Catherine Bigelow sort of frames masculinity in her movies. Um, and hmm. I think that Near Dark doesn't, and like, they're all different, too, if you look at them, between, like, Near Dark, um, Point Break, Strange Days, even Zero Dark Thirty. Um, there's something really fascinating about the, about the way that she sort of explores these things. Um, it's just, there's nobody who makes movies like she does. Um, and I've always really appreciated that. But it, again, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, cool, this is, you know, a, a woman-directed horror movie. And then as I got older, I was like, Wow, those are like a finding like a diamond in the rough. Like you just you don't find very many of those. I mean, yeah. it's getting better now, but you know, in when this movie came out, you know, in 1987, like I don't know. I think you really could on one hand name the amount of horror movies directed by women, um, which is pretty sad. Well, even Slumber Party Massacre Two is directed by a woman, so I feel like the Slumber Party Massacre movies had the market cornered. In the <laughs> they were doing it right. It was like, oh yeah, Catherine Bigelow. Yeah, they were doing it right. They were onto something at the time. I like this take on masculinity and, and her kind of flipping the script on what it is to be a woman and what it means to be a man in these genre movies because an image, is, an image that keeps coming to me is, is May cradling Caleb's head in this movie and you think about Strange Days and Angela Bassett kind of holding and protecting Ray Fine's character. You know, Usually in, in these types of movies, it's the other way yeah, around. Also, in, I was going to say in Point Break, also there's the scene when... Um, Tyler rescues Johnny Utah when he's trying to learn how to surf. So basically it's her coming to his rescue as yeah. well. So, yeah. Yeah. Near dark has a lot of that too. With, I, I feel like, um, I, I feel like Adrian Pastar does not have as much agency, both in terms of him securing a, a food supply and even with his sister in the end. I mean, most of, most of that is not driven by him, right? It's driven by May. So it's, it's, um, yeah, I'd never thought about that before, but that's a super good point. Well, that's what I think. Let's just talk about this now. Um, Heather, you mentioned your Blu-ray, the Twilight Blu-ray <laughs> oh, version <boy. laughs> of Near Dark. And that even, the, even that animation gets it wrong. It really makes it look like he's this dominating vampire that's taken her under, under his wing, you know? They, I mean, the whole marketing thing for that is just so off. It's unbelievable. But uh, I guess they got some people to buy it. Maybe that wouldn't have bought it or were just tricked into thinking they were buying Twilight New Moon or something like that. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> It would be really funny if you bought this wanting a Twilight movie because I, I don't think they could be further yeah, apart from each other in terms of <laughs> aesthetic and how they treat vampires. I mean, this is... Because I've never seen any of the Twilight movies, but they're they're kind of good guys, right? Or at least the protagonists are and they're they're beautiful and um, they sparkle and... And like, I think the vampires are just so amoral and nasty in this movie, which I love. That's part of what I love about it. Even... even I mean, even uh, um, Adrian Pastor's character is not that great of a person if you think about it as we go through the movie but I'll, I'll wait till we get to him well let's let's talk let's talk a little bit about twilight i guess i mean i've read listen folks <laughs> i'm a pop culture connoisseur <laughs> everybody who knows me knows this about me okay <laughs> i read i read all four books oh god i read all four books i saw the first two movies and i said i'm good here i, I need to do something else <laughs> i need to go on <laughs> heather did you read or watch any of these especially during the the phenomenon of 15 10 15 so years it's ago? funny it's you know because i'm 
you know, I'm a woman. Um, so you'd think like, ooh, Twilight. Um, and, I'm, and I'm not putting down anybody who likes Twilight because I think ultimately those movies, you know, they serve a purpose to people who maybe wouldn't necessarily watch horror. And they also, I think, serve a purpose to being sort of gateway horror for younger, for audiences, sure. especially female yeah. audiences. So I don't want it to sound like that. Um, but so when the first Twilight book was kind of becoming a big thing and they were starting to make the movie, I was going through a divorce, which is probably not like the best time to like want to like be swept up in like vampire romance. Um, I made it through about halfway <laughs> in the book and I could not stand it. And I was like, oh, this is just not for me. Um, so It's a tough read. It's, oh, it made me realize, like, hey, maybe I could write a book. <laughs> and I have. So, you know, I was like, thanks for that, Stephanie Meyer. Uh, but I, what's interesting is um, I, you know, being in this, this world, I've been working in horror now for like 13 years. And you would think I'd have to at some point cross paths, cross, cross, blah, blah, excuse me, cross paths <laughs> with the Twilight movies, and somehow I managed to dodge that bullet all the time. The only thing I ever had to do was cover their stupid press conferences at Comic-Con, which were always at 9 a.m. on Thursday mornings, which was just the worst, and then I was done. I didn't. I never had to review them. I never had to watch them. Um, again, I don't want to seem like I'm putting down it to anybody who's listening. They're like, hey, I really like those. Like, I... You know, everybody's every movie's got a fan. Um, they just weren't mm-hmm. for me, and I knew that. And you know, and I have friends who love them. I ha- I worked with this woman at the time who uh, went to a, vi- a Twilight ball in Chicago that they had. They had a special Twilight themed ball wow. where everybody got dressed up. Um, and she also added uh, sparklies to her Edward poster that was in her cubicle at work because Edward should sparkle at all times. I'm not joking. I'm getting flashbacks to these books yeah, now, and she, which I've kind of forgotten. Yeah, and she was like a few years older than me. Um, so I, I wasn't, I, I was just like, oh dear. Um, that was when I realized I was like, oh, this fandom is, is, is hardcore. Um, you know, so it's again, it, they weren't really for me. Um, I, I appreciate what they did because you know, I have a niece who is just about to turn 15, and she's seen the Twilight movies, and she also loves horror, and I think that's kind of goes hand in hand. Uh, so if nothing else, I think they sort of added to the conversation that maybe a lot of people weren't having about vampire movies, you know, at that time, because we really weren't getting a ton of them when the Twilight movies hit. Um, oh, it was zombie era, you know, it was a zombie, zombie era. Yeah, like say. we were getting some stuff like Daybreakers and things like that, which was pretty cool, or 30 Days a Night, but as the most part like it was just pretty much all twilight um but the one fun fact i will say is that the twilight vampires are technically not the first sparkly vampires the first sparkly vampires are the lost boys because that was all by design with v <laughs> neil because she decided that when they imploded or when they were injured or anything like that that they should have sparkles in their blood so she would put glitter in in the fake blood or the goo, or whatever they had. So technically, the Lost Boys were the first sparkly vampires. I love it, and I love Lost Boys. I do miss the Lost Boys very much these days. Uh, have you seen any? Let's let's keep this let's keep this tangent going. Has anybody seen the two Lost Boys? Sequels? Oh yes. No. I have two. Um, the one when <laughs> when no, Haim kind of comes in yeah. at the end, I was like, oh boy, Ugh. that was that was a rough That's, one for me. These are rough times. Yeah, I, I can't. Rough we times know we're going to cover these eventually. <laughs> Godspeed on those. Yeah, season 30, we're like digging the bottom of the barrel for our franchises. Here we go. The Lost Boys, the tribe. Let's spend February talking about it. Uh, Mac, I have a question for you. Yes. I'm putting you on the spot. What are some of your favorite shots from this movie that really stand out? Ooh, favorite shots. 
Um, I will say that there, I would say, God, that's really, that really is putting me on the spot. I mean, I could name some, some sequences, some scenes maybe. I think I really love that first sequence when Caleb is walking across the, the, you know, his, his family's land to get home and he's just, you know, Mm. smoking um that whole idea or just seeing him off in the distance like something's wrong with him like and like his sister knows like in, immediately you know he's stumbling around out there um i really like that just that shot from the vhs cover when they come up over that hill and they're backlit mm. is beautiful um something that uh, i i watched this movie with the commentary and um Catherine bigelow was just talking about how adam greenberg was brilliant at night lighting and uh just you know had such a talent at doing that and you can really tell i feel like so much of this almost <laughs> most of the movies at night i feel you know and and uh it, it comes across so gorgeous i, I wouldn't say it's like you know dean cundy but it, it it has that feel to it i think the, the way that that it is shot is very very um fluid and cohesive in that that kind of night uh that tent adam adam greenberg was a cinematographer for this movie yeah. he also did the terminator there's a lot of cameron connections yeah, here yeah. let alone the fact that Catherine bigelow ended up marrying james cameron that's probably the biggest connection of them all but bigelow said that her and greenberg wanted the night to look seductive so even though we don't think of the family itself as a very you know sexy looking group of people necessarily or living in a luxurious lifestyle you could kind of see how somebody would be seduced into that especially at the beginning with may and how she's presented to caleb and how beautiful the night is and you've got that unbelievable tangerine dream score in the background and i think they really pulled it off like you said matt beautifully i mean they just did dan what about you what, what stands out about her direction in this movie man if we're talking about individual shots for me it's where uh it's where homer is running after Caleb's sister at the end and he's just burning and burning mm. and you get that slow motion shot and it's obvious the flames were CGI or whatever or not CG but superimposed um, but it doesn't bother me because A, that kid's performance is great and then just when you think about it you're like okay I'm seeing this old man vampire in the body of a little boy chasing after what he views as his one true companion and willing to just get burned alive for it. I, so a lot of that's coming mm. from the story right? Not necessarily the cinematography or the shot setup but when i i just think of what this movie is to me and why i love it i think it's all summed up in that one shot like there's actually so much going on in that one shot even though to the uh untrained eye i guess it's just a a kid running on fire which is kind of cool in itself right <laughs> um, but that's yeah. the, that's the one that really sticks out to me i i, I and it's painful too i mean even though even though homer is just like the other vampires is pretty amoral they do have wants and desires. They do have hunger. They are trying to survive. So um, you do feel for them. At the end of the day, you are watching a little kid go through a lot of pain. So it really hits me. So yeah, that even watching it again this time, I'm like, man, that shot is really, really good. So that would be my pick. Yeah, I mean, Bigelow is so awesome at slow motion. You, I mean, especially oh, look totally. at Heather's favorite movie, Point Break. I mean, that's the peak oh, of, of great gorgeous. slow motion use, you know? Uh, Heather, what about you? Um, well, first of all, I'm glad that you mentioned that scene with Homer running after Sarah um, because it is really tragic. Um, I think what's interesting is that we don't really get a whole lot of humanity from the from 
Jesse and his gang in this movie. Um, but ultimately we do in these like final moments, like we see, you know, Jesse and Diamondback hold hands as they're basically engulfed in flames. You know, we see Homer desperately running after Sarah. Um, I think the only person we don't really ever get any sort of sense of humanity from is Severin, but I think that's intentional. Um, because mm-hmm. he's just, you know, he is, he is a machine uh, of death. Um, and there's just, he does not care. Um, I, when you talk about scenes, I love, honestly, like, I like the little simple things. Like I love opening with the mosquito. Um, because I think it's just such a, 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 for a movie that's very serious, um, it's this little note that you don't know that's kind of funny and sort of allegorical in a way, um, but it is, you know, especially going into it, watching it the first time, you're just like, oh, it's a mosquito, and then like, oh, this is, you know, basically what this movie is. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think you can even talk about this movie without talking about the scene in the bar. Um, because it's probably mm-hmm. the most iconic sequence in this whole movie next to Severin jumping on top of a moving semi truck and ripping <laughs> out the guts like and just yeah. again, you know, I think I think Bill Paxton had so many amazing performances in his career. Um, he was one of those sort of one of a one of a kind talents. But I, I think his portrayal of Severin in this movie is an all-timer um like i know lance henriksen is badass as jesse and he's cool and he's calm and collected and i know Jeanette is really really fantastic in this as well and i I think there's something really interesting about homer as a character but severin for me he's just he's the one you have to always keep your eye on because you don't know what's coming um there seems to be like everything with like jesse is very calculated and severin there's just not he just acts he's very reactionary um, and it's interesting watching this now, like, especially, I don't know if you're, if you're a woman on the internet or anything like that, or you're in any sort of public spaces, like you understand, like there's very much sort of this feeling of white male aggression that kind of comes at you out of nowhere sometimes. Um, and for me, I'm like, wow, this movie is like 33 years old now. And Severin is probably the most relevant character from this movie, um, today, um, because there's just something really mm-hmm terrifying in a very visceral way about how he is and how he acts and how he reacts. Um, but yeah, when I, when you think of near dark, like again, I love the the little quiet things. Um, but ultimately that, that bar scene is probably one of the most terrifying things to come out of eighties horror. Yeah, I agree. I think Severin is kind of like reply guy. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's the sentient form. It's funny too, because the, that, bar scene I was thinking this time around I'm like oh this is this is like Tarantino before Tarantino you know like people I feel like Tarantino always Mm -hmm. gets credit for having these really tense claustrophobic scenes usually in bars or back rooms somewhere that build and build and build to this explosion but watching this I'm like oh no man Catherine Bigelow was totally doing this kind of thing first in my opinion I love. I 100% agree. We'll definitely be talking about that bar scene later on in this episode. I feel. Oh, go ahead, Heather. Oh, I was just gonna say. When, I, I love that you mentioned the Tarantino thing because it, when I was rewatching this, again, um, it really reminded me of the opening of From Dusk Till Dawn in a way. When it's like mm. just a guy <laughs> oh, sitting yeah, yeah. in there and he's in his convenience store at the gas station and he's just living his life and then just like the shit hits the fan literally and you're like, oh my god, like what is happening? And um, yeah, I, I, I think. I think there's quite a few things, I think, from this movie that maybe influenced Tarantino's writing style in a, in a lot of ways. I would 100% believe that. From a shot, kind of like from an actual proper directorial flourish I really like a lot, is I love the screen wipes in this movie. Mm. They kind of recall old samurai movies, like old Kurosawa movies especially. And I mean, those movies obviously would go on to influence 
the Westerns that a lot of people know and love today. So that's something that really stood out this time. I probably didn't really take note of when I was 15. You know what I mean? Just little things like that. Um, I have a question for everybody here. Here's what Catherine Bigelow had to say about violence around this time, about violence in movies. I thought it was a pretty interesting statement. She said that my feeling is if it allows you to get out certain tendencies and certain elements of aggression in a vicarious voyeuristic manner that is very safe, then it can be very therapeutic. Uh, Heather, what do you think about that type of a statement? Um, I would totally agree with that. Um, you know, and I think mm. it, w- there, what really makes Near Dark sort of a standout vampire movie in a way is is what it has to say about violence because you have these characters who on their own, they they are dangerous. You know, they they have the ability to do things to you, you know, that most human beings don't already. And yet what I think is really fascinating is that they always are using weapons, Um, and I don't think that gets talked about enough because like you have them, they're still using knives, they're using guns. Um, and I was, I was really trying to rack my brain, um, thinking about other modern vampire movies. And I don't think there is another modern vampire movie where you see vampires using weapons like they do in near dark. Um, which is interesting to me because it tells me two things. It tells me one, um, you know, that the violence for them is beyond just their, the necessity of feeding. But then also, it also, for me, sort of connects them still to their humanity um, and to who they were as human beings. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think it's a really smart touch um, in the script from from Catherine and Eric. I think that says a lot without saying anything, if that makes any kind of sense. That makes total sense to me. And and that's how I feel about violence, especially when it comes to movies. For instance, look, I'm not... I'm not going to tell you to not use guns. I personally have never held a gun. I don't feel comfortable holding a gun. That's just me, okay? Love watching shoot 'em ups. Love it. Fun time. Like I, I if you can separate it from reality, that's great. Now she also made another point where she said that now there are some movies that do almost deliberately incite violence and that's a problem. So you have to kind of learn to separate the two and 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 how you what do you think the director slash writer's intent is? Yeah, anyway, I thought that was a really interesting quote, and I like that quote. Because a lot of people do look at us sometimes, I feel, and say, you know, why, how can you watch that? And it's just, I don't know. It's Why do you go on the roller coaster? You know, I, yeah. I don't know. It's, it seems like a pretty bad idea, but we do it anyway. But also and I, to, but I get a lot of enjoyment out of these. To Heather's point about uh, never really seeing vampires do that, What's really cool, which I don't, I think when I first saw this movie, I was kind of put off by the um, creation of their own mythology. But I, I think this is also probably one of the first uh, vampire movies where they like, not only do they purposely do that, but they don't, they don't address it, really. You know, like, oh, well, I thought this would, I thought garlic would work. You know what I mean? Like, they don't, it, yeah. it's almost like vampires don't exist in this world and they really are coming well they never say the word yeah like they never call them vampires right i don't think the word vampire is uttered once in this movie they don't they don't say it but that's what's so great and i think you know because you don't see any of the normal tropes so, so like crosses or you know stakes or anything like that so as you are watching the movie you really are kind of like you don't know what's going to happen. What happens if they get shot? What happens if they get their head cut off? What ha- you know, you don't know. Uh, and I think that kind of reinvigorates the film for anybody that's tired of vampire movies. Uh, so I think <laughs> yeah. in terms of a great rewatch, 
it's it is great because it's it's it still feels fresh uh you know so many years later dan another quote that she gave in this really great interview by the way it's 25 minutes long it's on youtube just type in Catherine bigelow near dark and there's a lot of technical issues during the interview which is pretty funny to watch because it hasn't been edited down but anyway keep that in mind uh dan she also says that she views the unholy trifecta as it were as uh, as feeders as opposed to killers victims of a violent act they will survive so long as the family unit stays intact and she said it was actually a cautionary tale pleading for the nuclear family do you think that comes across 100 percent in this i mean i think both things can be true right it's funny to me that she says that they're just feeders um which yes okay they're feeding but like like heather was saying i mean there's a definite sadism in in it uh especially when we find out that um uh that jesse was a Wait no, who is who is the soldier? Jesse, yeah. Jesse was he were, right. He, he fought Justin. for the yeah, south, right, yeah, <laughs> and lost. Yeah, and and so <laughs> that you know that informs a lot of that character, and so and I I think I think we see the more despicable, violent aspects of them first. The first time where I really pick up on the sense of family and pick up on a kind of warmth between them is when they're in the hotel room. It's um, after uh, uh, Jesse is, or sorry, after Caleb is kind of save the day uh if you will and we see them you know playing cards together and and kind of just being chummy and then it's funny from then on out in the movie i really do view them as a family even severin uh who i guess would be like the (laughs) the asshole older brother or like the 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 nephew that no one wants to talk to right um (laughs) yeah and but i think both things can be true like it's it's possible to be a a horrible person and also care about your family and want to do things for them i mean i i get a sense of family when i watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though they are a completely <laughs> deranged clan, right? Like, you do get the idea that they, like, no one ever thinks they're the villain, right? Like, you get the idea that they have wants and desires. So, yeah, so so anyway, I agree with Catherine Bigelow's statement, but I don't think it makes itself super apparent until later in the movie. You know, I don't, all right, I will say this. I don't know if I necessarily view the movie as an argument for that, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. of, like, family mm-hmm. staying together just because we've seen them do ho- so much horrible shit. Um Although you could argue the same thing would apply to Caleb's family too, right? Like the end of the movie ends with, it ends with um, him be, getting back together with his family and expanding it uh, with May. So, so actually, I'm going to take it back. I do agree with Catherine Bigelow, but I end up getting the wholesome part. I think from maybe the uh, the humans, not the not the vampires at the end. I think there's just more to this movie than meets the eye on first watch. And again, I think just like I don't think that we're, yeah. we would have been thinking about any of these things when we were kids. I think that when you've actually kind of lived a life, you can really start to pick out, oh, these aren't just gun-toting vampires, killing, having a good time. They get killed at the end. You know, there's something more going on here. And that's what makes it such a great rewatchable movie. Arguably, though, I would say, like, Caleb's family itself is kind of, like, humdrum compared to the rest of the movie. Like, like, I love Tim Thomerson, but, like, I, I, you know, it's just sort of, like, you know, he wants to get his kid back, but it just, I don't feel any sense of real passion there. Um, and Sarah's just like, with the first time she sees him, she's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm mad at you or whatever. Um, it's weird because it's like, there's, because Jesse and his gang are so interesting in such a chaotic, like, way. And then you have, you know, the Colton family who's very just sort of there. Um, so it's really interesting. Like I'm, a, I'm an animal doctor, yeah. and that's our lives. You know, it's yeah, kind of a small town atmosphere. But also, I think that that's so good because it really illustrates like why Caleb does kind of decide I'm going to stay with these guys and and be with them now. 
like aside from living forever and you know feeding and all this stuff because honestly the only thing that the one thing that he's really against is actually killing people so his life's got to be pretty boring and awful you know what i mean for him to go yeah. off with these killers you know what i mean so that but that's why it's so it, it is kind of it is very humdrum but you're also kind of like yeah i understand why caleb doesn't really try to get away or stop them at the bar or you know he, i think he kind of is attracted to this life still in some way uh which is yeah which is kind of cool kind of on this topic is that in so many vampire movies you know of course twilight excluded when these uh, when people become vampires their personality totally changes they're evil bam right so my question is if Caleb is is pretty much a full vampire at this point, but his behavior is still the same, he still seems like the same person he was before he was turned, do we think that Severn was always like this before he was a vampire? Do we think this about, you know, all the other characters? Do we, or, or do you think that they might have changed over time because that's all they knew? Well, I think in the... I mean, uh, Catherine Bigelow, well, it's, it's, uh, Severin is supposed to be kind of like... I think he was a bit like that before, and I think that he totally embraces the vampiric life and is that vampire, you know what I mean, like, and runs with it. Whereas everybody else, I don't know. I, I Maybe it's because they've been around for so long. I kind of feel like there's more gravity there that maybe life, their long life has kind of twisted them into what they are now. Um, mm-hmm. But but even with Caleb, though, like, he doesn't, he doesn't ever actually kill anyone does he mm, that's an no. actual question no, <laughs> no i don't think he <laughs> yeah, does yeah so i don't think he did they try to get they try to give him that first kill but he doesn't actually go through this so i wonder i wonder if that's kind of like the last thing you need to do before but it doesn't seem like that like again like the rules have changed um it isn't like well once you make your first kill then you're forever a vampire or you know uh, not that that's actually a rule i, I don't think but ultimately but you <laughs> know you, you watch things like interview with a vampire and that he is very you know reticent to to you know feed off of live humans and stuff like that and so like there is that kind of dynamic but um but yeah i don't think that is interesting though justin because you're right i mean i think when they're more it's more a religious tale where they're like, okay, a demon has stepped into this body essentially. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I even feel like yeah. Buffy's like that. Like, like they no longer have a soul. Like that's the thing. They there lose the soul, but I don't, well, Heather, there's another, feel like that here. Yeah. Sorry. But there's another scene where Diamondback and Jesse are talking and the car, they're kind of reminiscing. And I think it's intimated that Diamondback picked Jesse up as a hitchhiker. Years earlier, yeah, right? I, I definitely get a sense and that even though he's sort of the leader, I think ultimately this is this was all kind of her quote unquote doing. Yeah, that's my question. Did she turn him or did he turn her? Because because he was back in the Confederate. No, I think I think he was back during the Confederate. Right, era, right. We don't really get a sense of so, her exact timing, but it but it yeah. you know it definitely. I think there's interpretations for both. Like if somebody said to me, like, mm-hmm. no, Jesse was the, you know, the the first, and then he kind of brought everybody into the fold, I'd be like, okay, I could see that. But I also think that there are hints, oops, uh, to Diamondback sort of being the one who sort of initiated with with Jesse, um, and it's interesting. And I think yeah. also what's what's really crazy to me is like as a kid, I actually didn't even realize that Jeanette Goldstein was the same Jeanette Goldstein from Aliens. Oh no! Like yeah. completely oh, yeah. <laughs> different performance, completely different look. 
Um, and it's it's funny because like I, I just really love her like frizzy hair. I don't know why I'm just so enamored by that, but it's like this. What's well, so like that wild like, like um, yeah, it's job like too. It's like shocking blonde, like you know? platinum blonde, frizzy matted. Like it's there's just something really kind of cool about like the reckless abandon that it, her hair represents. I don't even know because like you know as a girl like you have to like you know do your hair a certain way, or especially like in the '80s, like during you know during that time when everything was like about your clothes and the way you looked and how you you know especially as a woman how you carried yourself. Shoulder pads were a thing, and Diamondback was like the complete antithesis of that. Um, and ultimately, she's kind of the coolest thing, like, you know, one one of the most coolest, like, female representation that we get, you know, in 80s horror, which is kind of fun. Um, but, yeah, I always get a sense that there's something more to her um, than we really got to see in that movie. And, I, you know, if they would have given me a prequel of those characters, like, before all of this, mm. before Severin joined the pack and, and Homer, like, I would I would have immediately, like, I would have given him my money immediately, sight unseen. I remember there was talks of a sequel or and even a remake in the last 20 years or so, but they just kind of fell by the wayside. And this is one of those movies for me where I feel like it would be so hard to remake. It just feels so tied into that time with that filmmaker and that cast. You know, I, I, I feel really precious about this movie when it comes to that, I guess. Sorry, I wouldn't go online and say, how dare... I wouldn't start any petitions, okay, anybody? Don't worry. If you, if no, you, want, if you want to remake it, it and you got... You know. Well, look, they've, they've, they <laughs> never remade cool. Point yeah. Break, so it's cool. We're, we're all good. So, you know, yeah. Oh, you're, you're right. right. You're they absolutely never, right. absolutely never remade Never. I do think a, a, a prequel could be cool if it starts so long ago and then the last hmm. sequence is like whatever last vampire remaining happens to stumble... Like you realize at the like last minute that the, it's the Civil War and it ends with them like in a tent with Jesse, like as Jesse's like dying or something. And so, so the whole speaking time you of, don't realize it's of, actually a prequel to Near Dark, but it really is. <laughs> I think that would be kind well, of. Well, speaking funny. of 1987 vampire movies, Kiefer Sutherland said that there was an idea for a prequel to The Lost Boys, which I think would have started off in 1920s San Francisco and then ended around the time of. Where, you know, the, when the movie takes place in the, in the mid-80s. So. Hmm. Also, never happened. But we're going to get that TV show next year, everybody. So <laughs> get ready for Lost Boys, the TV series. <laughs> Hopefully better than Lost Boys, the tribe, oh, and the first. I also, I also really quickly wanted to speak about the, the whole, like, you know, returning to the nuclear family thing. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think... It's funny because Kevin Bigelow actually talks about there being an... Uh, um, and, like, one of the ideas they kicked around for the actual ending of the movie... Do you guys, do y'all know about this? No, no, I don't so, think so. Uh, they talk about after Caleb and May uh, embrace at the end, it's like the freeze frame or whatever, that they were going to cut to his sister coming outside, and then she looks at her hand and it starts to smoke. Oh Ooh. Jesus! Like Homer, like Homer did turn her like at, at the end. And so I don't, it's a, the idea that they were kicking that ending around at, at any point makes me feel like they really weren't trying to say anything heavy with like the whole like, oh, you know, returning to the family kind of thing. Um, just be, I, I think that would have been trying. Now, when I first watched it, when I first, what I first heard though, because the way that the freeze frame ends, it ends with May kind mm-hmm. of looking at her hand. And I thought hmm. what they said was, is that they shot two endings and that the the other ending was that you know, that May's hand starts to smoke like, 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 like Caleb could turn because he was, he was so brand new. He, he he could be saved, but like 
she couldn't. She was too far gone or something. You know what I mean? Like she, and, and I kind of liked that too. Uh, I was like, oh my gosh! So I like around it and I listened to it again. And I was like, oh no, no, they're talking about the sister. <laughs> but I still think that that would. <laughs> you know, been I usually uh, interesting. I usually don't like freeze frame endings, but I love the freeze frame ending here. Um, I think it, it, once again, it's all about that music that's there for the whole movie, and it, it works for me a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, we've been talking a lot about the story itself within this discussion of Catherine Bigelow, but you know, again, a lot of credit has to go to her co- to her co writer Eric Red who before this wrote a quite grim horror movie, <laughs> to say the very, very least. Oh, called the so Hitcher. good. Oh, uh, my gosh. C. Thomas Howell, Rucker Hauer, Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, brutal. It makes this movie look nice, in a way, <laughs> of how grim it is. And he actually reteamed with Catherine Bigelow and co-wrote uh, Blue Steel, which we actually did not talk about. A, co- a Blue Steel with Jamie Lee Curtis and a late Ron Silver and everybody's favorite, Clancy Brown. And uh, he directed 1996's werewolf movie, Bad Moon, starring, uh, was it Michael oh, Perrin and yeah. Mariel it's Michael Perrin. Yeah, I, I watched that yeah. this year. I thought Bad Moon was pretty good, actually. I, I, the werewolf's cool it's as hell It's surprisingly good, right? make no bones For about just showing it. For a 90s werewolf yeah. movie? It yeah. Was, I, I was pleasantly surprised. When it came out, it kind of got panned and it disappeared. But, you know, I, 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 I still haven't seen it. So maybe I should check this out. You're, it was you're on kind of uh, recommending it. I think I watched it on Shutter earlier this year. Um, I think it was around when we were in quarantine. Something I love about that movie is that I feel like sometimes when we do werewolf movies, we either have the people turn into just a regular wolf, which is boring to me, or they get like kind of wolfman, you know, where you put some yeah. fake hair on them and pointy ears. What I love in this movie is, is it's this giant, like 10 foot tall, full on wolf puppet like this anthropomorphic wolf. I don't know I, I, I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of shit but uh, yeah I, did, I, I that makes me like Eric Red even more love Bad Moon well Eric Red uh, we don't have to get into this too much but he had a really difficult time in the late 90s uh, there's actually a really good write up on his life and this incident that happened to him uh, it's in the L, 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 you can find it online it's an LA Weekly feature called really disgustingly called Death Race 2000. Like, if you know what happened uh, to this guy, that's like the... I can't no. believe they, they actually called it that. It seems very tabloidy. But he's actually... He's got a Twitter account now, and he seems to be doing well, but um, he really went through a tough time, and he's kind of done some movies in the last few years, but nothing, obviously, as high-profile as her, his team-ups with Catherine Bigelow. Uh, I want to share a little bit of dialogue here that I love. That's in the very beginning, and it's something I never really think about fully, when I think about the life of a vampire. And it's when May and um, yeah. Caleb have just met. They're, they're talking and, and she says, uh, look up, stars. See that one. First one I laid my eyes on. The light that's leaving that star right now will take a billion years to get down here. You want to know why you've never met a girl like me before? And Caleb says, yeah, why? And she says, because I'll still be here when the light from that star gets down here to Earth in a billion years. Like, I always seem a vampire's even though you know you live forever, quote unquote, I always just figured, ah, eh, they probably got killed in a hundred years. <laughs> but if you don't get killed in a hundred years, you could just go ahead and live for a billion years, and that kind of blew my mind in a way. I'm not sure, but there's just a lot of crisp dialogue in this movie that makes it more than just a vampire movie. That kind of fuses it to that forlorn Western genre. I don't know. I don't know if anybody else has any particular dialogue moments akin to this. I mean, we can. There's definitely some dialogue moments from, from Severin that we can discuss later on. But uh, anyway, I really liked that specific part of the screenplay, I guess. 
Um, anything else on, on the on the writing of this movie uh, to, for Eric Red's credit, at least? Uh, not so much on the writing, but like just the way they shot it. I guess uh, I, I thought some interesting stuff. Like it was supposed to be July, but I think they shot in October, November. So um, it was actually like snowing in this town. That is, cr- it looks <laughs> and so hot. I know, in this movie. and it's funny because in, in wow. the, co- the commentary, Catherine Bigelow was like, "Yeah, the, in this town, it had not snowed in a hundred years in this town, and then it started snowing <laughs> while they were shooting this thing there." Um, Jeez. And just that, uh, I think that the way, and well, I guess this is kind of talking about the the cast a bit, but um, but in terms of Catherine Bigelow kind of wanting to do a Western, I think she also, you know, like she rode horses and stuff like that. That was kind of like the impetus for Caleb, like getting on a horse at the end uh, and using that uh, to go into town to search for them and, and to, to bring, to kind of bring the Western themes back to the forefront. Oh, it's also like an empty that. road, just like a Western movie would have an empty road. Nobody on the streets, but the, the yeah. hero and the villain. And then there's, know? and she, she even said like that, like the, the, the showdown between Caleb and Severance is supposed to be like a Western shootout, like the two of them in the middle of yeah. the road. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just, I love the look of this movie and the feel of it. And, uh, you know, so good um, I, can't, I can't wait to talk about the next category as well <laughs> real quick I was going to mention uh, when well, you mentioned the, yeah, the, the lines that sort of stuck out to you um, and it kind of gets it sort of correlates with what May says about like stars um, but in the beginning when like Caleb meets up with his little buddies and they're drinking beers um, and he just sort of offhandedly says I wish I was a thousand miles from here tonight um, I think that's so telling for mm. his wanderlust and I think that makes the case for sure. why he was so easy to just kind of go along with the with everybody. Um, and I think that just again, it's one of those like little toss away lines where like if you're really not listening, you may not even hear it. Um, but I think it's really important to sort of contextualizing who Caleb was and why it was so easy for him to kind of get swept up in all of it. I agree because so many other stories, instead of just using that one line. It would take 20 minutes to explain who he is, why he's here. They would have had a whole scene with him and his dad talking, you know, and they just get right to it because all you need is that one line of him just saying, get me out of this one horse town, yeah. this one light town, you know. I, I agree. I like that. I like that take a lot. You guys, you know, it's been nicer lately. And in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in, but it's been nice for like four days in a row. And I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up. And so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like calorie smart, protein plus, keto. Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want, it's effortless guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BADMOVIES50 at FactorMeals.com slash BADMOVIES50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Um, well, we've kind of teased it, but it's time to go into our new our, our next section. I'm fumbling over the words here because I feel like it's, I'm still natural. It's still natural for me to go into the other categories we've been doing for two and a half years. <laughs> yeah. So I have to kind of figure out a way to weave my way into this. But we are going to go to our next subject, and it is called Music From and Inspired By. 
now it's time for the fun part. Okay, well, look, you know him, you love him. Tangerine Dream did the score to this movie. And up to this point, they were much more well-known for their kind of thumping, action-driven scores. You think about something like Thief, especially, um, even Risky Business, and the American version of, of Legend when they famously took over from Jerry Goldsmith. <laughs> uh, Sorcerer is an incredible pulsating score. But I'm not sure about the three of you, but the, the theme that has stuck with me, despite the great, again, there's some great upbeat music in this, some real good action stuff, obviously. But um, I think it's called Bus Station slash Maze Theme. Yeah. Which is kind of the, I mean, it's the main theme for me of the movie. And it's kind of the love theme. That's the one that really sticks with me. I'm not sure. What, what do you um, think well, about the score fan. of this movie? I actually really loved um, their score for Firestarter, which I don't think a lot of people talk about because I don't think a lot of people talk about Firestarter. Um, which has its rough edges, but I really love it because it was right. like young Drew Barrymore uh, and Heather Locklear playing her mom and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, it's it's weird because like, I don't know, for me, it's it's hard to pick a track because it all just kind of blends beautifully. Um, and it just sort of becomes like yeah. this sonic journey. That sounds so cheesy. I know. That's in the back of the VHS box, I think. They <laughs> I'm, I'm going to pull quotes. <laughs> but like, I, seriously, like once it starts... Like, you could just, if you could turn off the dialogue, like, you could watch this movie silently with just the score, like, and I think it would still be just Mm. as effective. So for me, it's hard for me to sort of pick out, like, parts of the score that work better than others, because I think ultimately, again, it's one of those things that you just kind of lean back and you just feel like you're completely whisked away. Um, throughout this entire film with, with what they bring to the table. But yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Um, I also like their, their take on uh, Legend as well. So, um, But yeah, it's hard for me to be like just one specific. But like, I think the main theme, obviously, is sort of the, the, that iconic piece of music that I think when most of us think of Near Dark, that's what we sort of think of like when we think of the, the score. Yeah. Mac, I know you wanted to talk about this, the score. Yeah, well, you know, we just did uh, over on uh, Losers Club, we did our top 10 scores for Stephen King adaptations. And it's funny because Jen brought up Firestarter and talked about how she loved that score, which made us go back and listen to that uh, when we were considering all the scores. And uh, and obviously, I feel like I don't love that movie, but I think that the score stands out even more probably because the movie's not brilliant. But I do really like that score. And... Big fan of Tangerine Dream anyways, like Justin already highlighted some of those that those are my favorites. Um, But what was interesting was I didn't remember that they did the score to this and I hadn't seen this movie in so long. So rewatching it, I was really keying into that this time uh, because we brought it up on the pod uh, on the Losers Club. And uh, yeah, I have to go with that theme, maze theme, Justin, uh, just that that sequence after I think it's right after she kind of first feeds Caleb her own blood, and then they they walk out into like the night just outside of this warehouse, and she says that line you know the night's so bright it'll blind you, and that theme's mm. playing and they kind of just run off to go like experience you know it's his first real time seeing with like those through those eyes, and uh, 
yeah, the score I just think is is great, and I, I agree. I I I I'm hoping people are listening to this that 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 bring this out on Blu-ray or whatever the hell they're going to bring it out on next. Definitely put an isolated score track on that because I think you could just let it mm. play with just the score, and it and it's it's a really gorgeous watch. I think. Well, it's funny because as hard as the movie is to find, the score is sitting there on iTunes. I listened to it. Mm-hmm. On iTunes the other day. Just sitting there. Mm-hmm. Just push play. You can't find the movie, <laughs> but here's the Tangerine Dream score from 33 years ago. You know, folks, I've heard of a meat cute, but this movie is more of a, a meat violent. Wow. Nice. <laughs> just going to let that sit there. I think Dan might have just had a heart attack, but... Uh, <laughs> we, we I was going to say, have you just heard my body hitting the floor? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, great, a beautiful score, but there are a few songs in this movie... We, we must point out because the bar massacre has four of them. That's how long this is. Wait, is there a, I, I didn't look at this up. Is there a Merle Haggard song playing at some point in the bar? That's what it sounded like to me, but I wasn't sure There's if it was George the country Strait song. There's a George Strait song. Uh, oh man, I got Merle Haggard confused with George <laughs> Strait. I feel like an asshole now. Yeah, well, there you go. Mr. Mr. Levi Jeans Cowboy over here, Dan Caffrey. <laughs> yeah, no, so yeah, The Cowboy Rides Away by George Strait. Uh, Jules Holland of Squeeze fame. For us people out there who remember Squeeze, and like also Squeeze? of course the, the Jules Holland uh, concert or the Jules Allen live series he's got in the UK, which is a really cool show. That you know, there's, there's these bands like this rotating wheel, and they kind of cut to the band, and they'll just cut to the next band, and they'll cut to the next band. I don't know if people have seen it. It was on BBC America a lot. Check it out. Um, and then there's also a Fever cover by the Cramps. But somebody I'd like to highlight, Heather, you, you alluded to this movie earlier. But the first song that we hear when they walk into this bar is the song Naughty Naughty by John Parr. Do, do we all know who John Parr is? Why is that name famous when it comes to 80s movies? John Parr? Oh, I know why. He wrote the, Man in Motion for St. Elmo's Fire, which I listen to like all the time still. Sure like if I did. need a kick in the ass, <laughs> oh my it's on my Spotify God. like playlist. I was like, wait, what is he getting to? What is he alluding to? St. Elmo's Fire. Yes. Um, my hint would have been that that director also directed another vampire movie. That would have been my one J- hint. Justin, does, uh, does Heather know your feelings about St. Elmo's Fire? Oh, Heather, <laughs> listen to this. So one of my last pieces of writing was mm-hmm. for Consequence of Sound about five years ago. And I had never seen St. Elmo's Fire growing up, okay? So I saw it for the first time. Yeah. Way too old to see it for the first time. And it was this just absolute takedown piece of this movie, of how, of how, of how dated it is. And I think I kind of made like how Emilio S. Oh, he really is. Like a He's a total stalker, and it's like completely creepy. Oh, it's, it's ins- the insanity is like over the top. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole, so I, this whole just, just takedown. And it was actually one of those moments, and it was easily the, 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 the thing I wrote that got the most feedback, uh, positive and negative. And I realized, like, if the, if the best thing I'm ever going to do writing is an absolute takedown of something, then maybe I don't want to be a writer anymore. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever told anybody this, but honestly, that was like one of my things. It was like, I, I feel like I've written, I've written about things I love so much and nobody cared. And not until I took something down that people start caring. It's, I thought, it's so I true. It really anymore. sucks. Like, I... Yeah. It's it's tough. You know, it's, it's, no, I was going to say, I can write like a million positive ahead, reviews and, you know, maybe I get a few shares here and there, but like you say something negative or something snarky and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, we're going to share this. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's not who I am, though. You know, sometimes yeah. I want to be kind of catty, but like exactly. for the most part, I yeah. try to be celebratory. So 
Um, but I can see that because I mean, you know, yeah, I, I again, you. I love Saint Elmo's Fire as a kid. I have rewatched it. There, that movie is like probably like the, the <laughs> definition of cringe, because um, there is just a lot that's so wrong about that whole movie. Oh God, they're they're so awful. They're like the, these aw- just awful kids. It just it just pro- puts them up on this pedestal, and you're like, but they're because awful. that was such they're like so that was the, but shitty. that was really like, like the, so, sort of the, that, so, that, like, that Ivy that look crazy. at like Ivy League kids who were coming out of college in the '80s, who were you know they were supposed to be sort of fed into mm. like. You know, either like the Wall Street system or, you know, the the, the very typical sort of boxes mm-hmm. you would put, you know, college graduates in at that time. And I think it was really interesting because it's a movie that just basically shows you nobody knows what the hell they're doing once they get out of college. Um, but I do think my favorite thing is the whole scene when Demi Moore is like breaking down and Rob Lowe has to go in there and like save her. <laughs> and I was like, this is art. This is this is. Oh, yes. my God. Speaking speaking. <laughs> Speaking about saving, we're we're over an hour into this. Well, no, that's <laughs> we're talking about hey. Saint Elmo's fire. <laughs> that's that's, that's par par for the course. <laughs> oh, yeah, no joke. Oh my god! So anyway, by the way, we've been, we've been acting naughty naughty, and the song naughty naughty by John Parr <laughs> plays the moment they walk through that door. Um, they're good songs to soundtrack what's going on. I think you know, everybody's having a good time at the beginning, but then by the time it ends, you know we've we've had a fever. People are knocking on the yeah. Morse code to try to get help, and the Cowboys right away. I do you notice look that way. I just did. <laughs> I did notice Justin though that even some of the kills are scored. You know, like yeah. like the music shifts and changes changes when May starts to go after. The teenage cowboy, as he's credited, <laughs> our friend from Phantasm Two. It would be funny is if, if there was like, if one of the needle traps just went right to Man in Motion, like they had John Parr greatest <laughs> hits playing on the jukebox. Yeah, right. Yeah, they're like, oh, we that's all that that's the only thing in this jukebox. <laughs> the bartender's like, you got a problem with Parr? Get out of my bar. Love it. Wow. Um, it says that it says no folks, no no Parr no bar. Oh Jesus, Heather! We warned you about these dad jokes. I think the only time we hear incidental music in the movie is in the bar, right? Like, I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of just these four back to back songs. And outside of that, it's just the Tangerine Dream score, which I like. That it kind of almost makes the bar scene feel even more special and distinct, you know, because it's the soundtrack is so different, and it's almost like the Tangerine Dream score belongs to the vampire world, and these jukebox songs belong to the human world or something like that. I feel like it adds yeah. a specialness to the scene. You know, something else that we forgot to talk about yeah. is um, when it comes to the inside and outside world, as it, as it were, is that there's a scene when, when Caleb's walking down the street. I think it's shortly after he's trying to get away. And in the background, there's a theater marquee. Did you notice this? Uh, I believe it's Aliens, if I'm not mistaken. It's Aliens. How about oh, that? So I, I have a little tidbit from the uh, behind the scenes uh, from that DVD. Oh. <laughs> So when a- when Adrian Pestar was cast, he saw that Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and 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 Jeanette were going to be uh, in the movie with him, and, and Aliens had just come out. So he went to, into the theater to see Aliens, and the whole time he was just like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to be in this movie with these actors!" Like, and he was like flipping out about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just that's I think nice. that's that's, that's just so that's so cool, you know, like just to to go and then see that and know like oh these are the people you're going to be like rubbing shoulders with and I, yeah it's well I wonder cool. though if this is an alternate reality though so I, I wonder if if James Remar is still playing uh, is in this instead of <laughs> Michael Bean you know like I wonder if this <laughs> yeah. is an alternate 
an alternate reality. Well, wasn't uh, Michael wasn't Michael Bean offered the role of Jesse? I think he, he was, and he he turned it down because he said the script is too. Confusing. I don't know what, what he was on. Where he's yeah. like, I don't that's know. funny it's to follow me. along with point A to point B to point C. But yeah, it'd be you funny. Did, if, you yeah. did Terminator, one of the most confusing, like time travel confusing. <laughs> you're gonna turn that near dark? Like, what? It'll be funny. I love if Thirty the, years later, idea, like, thirty years later, he goes, "Oh, they were vampires." Well, why did you say so? That would have been. I lo- I love the idea, like, of, of him calling Catherine Bigelow on the phone, just looking at these pages in his hand. He's got, like, reading glasses on. He's like, Catherine, I, I just don't understand it. I want to help you out, but I, I just don't get it. Yeah, he's like, reading, like, Tarkovsky's Stalker. <laughs> and he's like, I get this. But so Catherine Empire goes, Western, what? <laughs> yeah, it's possible. She's, like, in this 30-minute, like, long description of, like, what the movie is. And then he just comes back with, like, but crosses don't work on them. Like, <laughs> just still He's going like, over his head. No garlic. Like, but you said they were vampires. Well, we've been talking about. Wouldn't it be funny if Michael Biehn was in this movie? But we should probably talk about the people who are in this movie in a section that we call "Who Goes There." You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. What did you say? I want to know who I'm talking to. That's not what you said. What do you think I said? What? Okay, well, let's start off with Adrian Pazdar, who plays Caleb Colton. We've talked about him a lot already, obviously. Dan, you made a good point. I think it was about three or four hours ago when you said that you didn't think that Caleb was necessarily the best, the best guy, right? Yeah, because... I mean, okay, he refuses to kill people or whatever, but he goes along with all this pretty easily, you know what I mean? And he has his reasons, of course, that we've already established, but his moral struggle, he draws the line at killing people, okay, I guess that's good, but he is, I mean, he doesn't really try and stop any of any of the horrible shit from happening, right? And at a certain point, his his main objective does pivot to the survival of these vampires. It's only when his sister gets involved does he start to go back to the other side? And I'm not complaining. I love that about him. I love that he's he's a, not a perfect hero and that he's a very flawed person and in many ways a, a selfish kid. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kept thinking about what if this was real life and he, you know, he became a human again and there's a big news story about it. I feel like it would be the same way as people who used to be in cults. Like, like if someone in the Manson family is like, oh yeah, you know, I never killed anyone, but I just sat by while, while the rest of them did and they were in a cult, I would... I would have sympathy for them, but I don't think I would look at them as a hero necessarily. I don't know. Did any of the rest of you have that feeling? No. Heather, what do you think about I, that? Thing? You know, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I, I would agree with that. Um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting too. Um, when you, when you look at what Sarah represents also to Caleb, um, there's, it's interesting because you'd think like there's a huge age discrepancy between them. Um, and there is something really mm. almost fatherly about his concern about her, which sort of makes you wonder about, um, you know, sort of Tim Thomerson's role in their family and everything like that. Um, and I also think it's interesting, too, that we don't have a mother in that family. Um, so it almost feels like it, it mm. to me, I think what, what's interesting is like Near Dark is sort of this, this movie about families led by fathers in a way. Um, and I think in some ways, mm, yeah, you know, sure. Caleb is yeah. sort of, again, sort of conflicted and, and things like that. Um, but ultimately, 
he's very fatherly in in the way that he acts towards especially towards Sarah. Um, you know, even in a way that maybe even Tim Thomerson isn't necessarily because his daughter le- le- leaves a hotel room at five o'clock in the morning and he doesn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, you're, you're in the middle of like somewhere you don't know. And your kid just walks out of a hotel room and you don't realize like what is going on with you. You're not, you know, you have one kid who runs off with a band of vampires and another one, at a, you know, sneaking out of hotel rooms when she's like eight. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that Tim Thomerson's the worst parent uh, in horror movies in the 80s, but he's up there. But yeah, I think there's... Caleb is a... It's interesting, because I, I, I like Adrian Pazder, but I like him now more than I think I did back then, because um, I actually used to watch Heroes. Um, hmm. And I was like, oh, it's the guy from Near Dark. And then I got into the second yeah, season of yeah. Heroes, and I was like, ooh, this show has got just got terrible. I'm out of here. <laughs> I was like, oof. Yes. I was like, first season, this is great. <laughs> second right. season, I am out. Um, but I always thought he was an interesting actor. Um, but I, I don't necessarily think he's necessarily the, the most interesting part of Near Dark, but I don't think he's meant to be. He's like the yeah, audience, basically. I feel we're in all the ways. We're yeah. just kind of, he's, we're going to, we use him to meet the, the interesting characters of, I, you know, Jesse I, Severin and Diamondback, you know. Something else that I'm thinking about too, and I want to make it clear, I don't think he's like a, a horrible person in this by any means. I think he's more just a, a bored restless kid essentially right and so he he's not able to be the kind of hero in the vampire movie that dr van helsing is or mina harker is or jonathan harker is um and and so but i'm I'm thinking about that scene where may gives him the blood and he keeps taking too much of it and she's like if you you know if you take too much you'll kill me and he kind of laughs at her right so i just feel like he's maybe selfish a, a little bit and once again i love i love that about him i love that it's complicated i love that that scene is (laughs) I forgive the word kind of hot in its own right. Right. Like they're taking blood and making out and stuff. And I mean, it's, they are kind of almost portrayed like sex scenes, but then it goes to this really gross place where you're like, Oh, she actually has more compassion than he does, even though she's the one that's the vampire. Um, Yeah. And Adrian Pass, I I agree with what you said. He's, I I think Adrian Passar just as an actor has a tortured quality about him. I don't know if he's like that in real life. And I think that, does work a little bit better as he's gotten older. He's kind of aged into that a little bit more, if that makes sense. I really like him a lot in Near Dark. And um, I actually remembered him as a kid in uh, Carlito's Way. He plays just kind of like the son of of, uh, of someone that Sean Penn is associated with. But yeah, I think I think his like strung out quality, has he's really aged into that quite nicely as he's gotten older. But yeah, but anyway, I've talked a lot about him. Yeah, what, what about you, Mac and Justin? Mac, Mac I know we, we both... No, Adrian Pazdar from something else that hasn't even been mentioned yet. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to like I'm racking my brain, but the thing I think you're going to mention is Profit. Yeah, that's right, Profit. Does anybody <laughs> remember Profit? No, it's Profit. I don't think I know that. Profit was this Fox show. So check this out. So Adrian Pazdar is this kind of Wall Street, really uber successful climbing the ladder guy, right? You think he's just this really sleek, conniving guy he'll get, do anything to get whatever he wants and then the first episode ends we go to his penthouse he's got this beautiful penthouse but it's totally empty and in the corner of the room there's like this cardboard box with newspaper and you see him sleeping in it and this yeah, was on yeah, Fox yeah. in the 90s so then there's a whole re- there's nothing uh, supernatural about it it's just is that it we learn more about who he is <laughs> it's no he's a, that's what I'm saying he's, he's not a vampire. vampire that's the twist it's like this really disturbing show and I remember it, it was really controversial at the time because you know you couldn't do anything controversial on television but really disturbing I think I think you probably find the whole series on on YouTube but uh, it was a good show he was really good on that show but that's the first thing I remember him in growing up was actually Prophet and then I saw Near Dark so yeah check out that show if you can. 
Here's something else I have to say about the character, though. Uh, how about this, everybody? Yeah. This movie doesn't happen if he isn't pressuring That's her so true. much to give him a kiss. Damn man. See? Kind of a He's bastard. He's kind of a bastard. See? What can I say? If he just drove her, yeah, if he just drove her to that trailer park, that would have been a wrap. Had to get that kiss. Yeah, kissy I kiss. Kissy kiss. I wonder if she's if she's like seducing him over time. You know, like there's no there's no real like, oh, we're going to, you know, she's not going to be there the next day. Like, let's not meet up again tomorrow night kind of thing. But I think that she just because it's almost sun up and she loses track of time that she's not able to like follow through. But but you are right. <laughs> if he didn't really try to manhandle her with that kiss, like, yeah, she probably wouldn't have bit him at that point. Absolutely. I, and, but to, to Dan's uh, point about him and, and, and Heather too said, that, you know, that he's not like the greatest guy. I think that that's really interesting because you think that, you know, vampires probably prey more on the weak and the weak willed or people that, you know, don't have great morals or doing things they're not supposed to be doing or, you know what I mean? Like, it, I think yeah. that's why he, that's why they're all very complicated characters because, you know, if it was just like this golden boy, you know, uh, that just would never do anything wrong, he probably would have, you know, not even picked her up. You know, he probably would have just like left her out in the <laughs> yeah. street. You know what I mean? Like, I think that 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 is what makes these characters like so relatable, too, because I feel like most most everybody's like that. No one's perfect. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone can relate to that. So you're absolutely right, Justin. Like, I think that Caleb in this movie is the audience. Um, and I think that there is a point at which we as, as awful and scary and violent as this clan is, I do think that there's a point in the movie where you kind of are, you kind of do become like enticed by that. They're like, like you're, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm all about this like gang of vampire. You know, like I, 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 I see why he wants to like do this, even though, it's like really wrong, you know, but I think that's what's so great about vampire movies in general. You know what I mean? I agree. And uh, one little footnote for Adrian Pazdar. If anybody's listened to the most recent album by the chicks called Gaslighter it is about Natalie Maine's marriage for almost 20 years to Adrian Pazdar. How are about they, that? Are they still married? How about they, that? Ah. No, they, okay. they, they just got sense, divorced though. about a year ago. I think they, yeah. Yeah, How I was going to say, you don't really write a song called yeah, that so. about your husband that you're happily married to, I guess. I was going to say, it was called Gaslighter <laughs> then, yeah, I'm assuming, right? They, they <laughs> unless, you're, unless you're Beyonce, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, or unless your husband is, maybe he's an oil man and he supplies the oil that goes into <laughs> gas lanterns. Oh, God. Tripping the life fantastic. <laughs> My one Mary Poppins returns reference for the episode. Hey. Okay, let's move on to our next character, and we talked about her a lot already. And that character is May, played by Jenny Wright. I like what um, Catherine Bigelow had to say about her. She said that this character had to be someone who kills, but you still feel sympathy for her. Uh, Heather, what do you agree. think about I, May? It's interesting because, like, you know, over the years we've sort of had the idea of that the manic pixie dream girl uh, has been sort of presented in modern mm. dialogue or dialogue about modern film. Um, and I sort of think she's kind of the prototype of that of that sort of idea of where she sort of flitters into mm. Caleb's world and kind of creates all this chaos. And even though there's parts of her that's always telling her, like, you know, even though she wants him to be part of it, but ultimately she still sort of wants him to 
serve like keep his humanity intact at least at first um yeah. you know there's it's it's interesting like when you talk about that like that idea of the that dream girl kind of coming in and you know causing this this sort of disruption in the life of, of you know the the guy who ends up sort of being her suitor um so i think she there's something really interesting about may where you know she is she's dangerous but she looks like an angel you know what i mean like she's she's very angelic looking um i i do i do love the fashion sense of tying the rope around the jeans um yeah i was like oh all it's right cool. For, forget belts we don't need belts <laughs> Um, but I really like her performance in here because it's very soft. Again, there's, there's so many hard edges to this movie, um, that she adds this really sort of lovely touch of softness to everything, um, which I think is nice. Cause even like Jeanette Goldstein, like as Diamondback, you know, she's still very, not alpha, not alpha, alpha male, obviously, but sort of very alpha in the way that she acts, um, where May, you can see, is just, she's part of the family, but she's, it kind of represents the heart of the family, I would, I would say. Um, and I think that, you know, there's something really interesting mm-hmm. about sort of female characters in Catherine Bigelow movies, because I think that happens a lot where, you know, they're put into these very male-dominated worlds, and you have to sort of, they have to navigate their way through them the best that they can. You know, obviously, again, something like, you know, Point Break, Blue Steel, Near Dark, Zero Dark Thirty, um, and I think Jenny Wright, she's really good. I mean, I think, I don't know that I, I, I still, to this day, I still have conflicted feelings about the, the ending of it, um, because I don't know that hmm. I necessarily feel like, I don't know if I love the transfusion idea, to be very honest. I feel safe. I'm with feels you. Easy, I completely agree. Um, but I also think it's a really interesting way to sort of look at what was happening in the the u.s at that time with the aids epidemic um and the idea there was a you know there was a lot of concepts of like transfusion therapy um sort of being a thing of a a cure-all for a while um and i always thought that there was some sort of connection between what you know uh loy sort of figures out as his, his cure for vampirism um so I, I'm I'm okay. Like as an adult now, I'm I'm okay that they end up together, and I'm I'm fine. You know, it's good, it's good. Um, but I don't know that like, I don't know that she deserved to live because she still was a killer. Um, but I think that there's enough redeeming qualities about her to sort of make her survival, in terms of sort of character redemption, I think it it works enough. If that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, Mac, what what do you think? Let's leap off that because what do you think would have been a, a, another acceptable alternate ending if you can think of something off the top of your head? Besides that Sarah pitch that you had given earlier too. Yeah, I no, I I I was always thrown off by the transfusion thing. Even when we first watched it, it was the one element that didn't sit quite right with me. And I think it's probably because I was such a horror purist at the time and was like this this isn't how vampires what what the fuck's going on you know but um but yeah watching it again i i I did kind of accept it this time because i knew it was coming and i was like okay yeah sure i don't think that um i don't know i i guess it all comes down to for me uh how old she is as a vampire 
because I think it suggested it's only been a few years, right? Didn't, doesn't Homer isn't Homer the one? That I think turns she her? says five years, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, so so I'm I'm I guess I'm more on board because she's only been doing this for five years. Because I know that Homer I think is forty years old. I, Catherine Bigelow says that in the commentary, but I don't know. I, obviously, we don't know exactly how old Jesse is, but he's pretty pretty old, or Diamondback for that matter. But um, I, I I'm a little bit more forgiving of it. I, I kind of like the idea of her, of the transfusion not quite taking, like if it had been what I thought I heard on the commentary where, where, you know, her, her hand does start to smoke a little bit. Like she is too far gone. Like she, she did kill people and she did, you know, like embrace this life. Whereas Caleb mm. kind of got out right before he made his first kill. So he was still kind of like, because then you're kind of tying it a little bit, I think, more to like the soul or something, um, and also like I, I guess it is pretty much it is very much a romance between the two in terms of like a, you know, the the movie's driving force is kind of like this romantic element between the two of them. So like them ending up together, I think I kind of, I give it like a pass. You know, I don't think it's like a weak scenario because especially for her, I think it's pretty awesome because she decides to save the sister and bursts out of the car with, you know, and all that stuff. Like, you mm, know, she, yeah. she chooses to, to not be a part of that anymore, having already been a part of it and already done all these awful things. So I kind of do give that ending a pass now watching it again. Dan, do you think because of everything that, that these characters are going through throughout the entire movie, that they kind of get a pass to do an ending like they end up doing. Like they've actually been through something as opposed to just kind of wafting their way through stuff. Like Max says, I mean, she does sacrifice and like catch on fire. It's kind of like, all right, well, you did all this, so we'll let you live. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I I would agree with that because my only real misgiving with the movie is the transfusion stuff, right? I I don't like how easy it is. It's weird that Adrian Passer just looks at his dad's equipment and makes the connection, you know, everything about it just feels so rushed in a way that the rest of the movie doesn't. The transfusion thing almost feels like something you would see in a more run of the mill vampire movie. Um, that being well, said, funny, I wasn't Dan. bothered. Sorry, not to cut you oh, off so got, too much, ahead. but also on the commentary, she said that they pulled that idea from the original Dracula, the whole idea of like bloodletting to cure yeah uh, and and stuff like that so yeah because but i think that's that's funny that we're all saying it's it's the one fault because it is kind of the only thing that they did still pull from vampiric totally. lore instead of creating their own lore so i think that that's kind of interesting i think that in dracula also it doesn't bother me because a van helsing's a doctor it's like established already right like it's established he he studies blood and he's been studying vampirism so he, like the idea itself doesn't seem that um that's stupid to me. Also, it doesn't work when they try and do it on Lucy, right? Like Lucy still succumbs to vampirism and gets right. bit one more time. Um, yeah. And so, um, but Dan, Tim, Tim is working on that, on that cow in the beginning. Tim, you know, he's been, you know, he's well versed in the, the ways of transfusing <laughs> <In> the, animals. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? They, and then I'm like, Oh, what did they do? Make him a surgeon. Um, but all, all that aside as a story beat, I don't find it super believable. And, Maybe it's not the best answer, but I like what you guys are saying that more from a moral place, right? Like they've kind of been through the ringer. They finally, these two morally flawed people do do the right thing at the end. So they deserve a little bit of happiness. So yeah, I'm on board with it. And 
it by no means makes me not like the movie. I, I think I'm, I don't know. I, I just like the idea of this hand smoking at the end. I think, I mean, I don't know. I feel like it's, it's, it's almost passe these days to end a horror movie on a negative twist. Right. Like I actually feel yeah. like we see that more right. than seeing a happy ending. Um, but being said, it just feels a little bit more realistic than transfusion, which is silly because it has to do with vampires. I'm like, oh, that's more realistic than getting well, a blood transfusion. Well, Dan, I, I must say, you'll love Twilight Breaking Dawn if you're if you're looking for a more <laughs> of a happy ending. Isn't um <laughs> wait? Doesn't I think I know the ending of Twilight? Doesn't the baby like break her back or something because it's so powerful? Dan, and we can't <laughs> possibly get into any more of Twilight. So I can't. Yeah, I can't <laughs> do it. Not Justin, until the Patreon demand it. So, what do you think, Justin? Well, I think I think she gives a good performance. I wanted to say that it's it's strange that she kind of disappeared a few years after this movie. She's she's very much off the grid. And the only thing I really knew her in, Heather, you reminded me of saying almost fire. Um, and I guess she believed <laughs> she in <did>. premarital <laughs> sax. Oh, God. I must emphasize sax because uh, Rob Lowe's character plays a saxophone. Is she is <laughs> yeah, in Pink Floyd the Wall. I know her from Madman also. Um, yeah. And she was also... Um, she has a, a, a small role, like not small, but she's, you know, she's not one of the the young guns, but she is in Young Guns too, uh, as well. Ah, okay. So you have only seen Young gotcha. Guns. Yeah, I've not um, seen Young Guns and too. And I know she, and I have, I actually, I haven't watched it like since I rented it in the '90s, but I, I do know she's also in Lawnmower Man. Oh yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> she is in Lawnmower Man. You know, she's also in uh, The Chocolate War, which I actually love. I think it's a super underrated movie and one of my favorite books. I mean, she she really did have quite the career, it looks like, uh, up until, I guess, she... Well, did she just disappear or stop acting? Or, or she retired from acting. Her? She retired yeah. from acting in the mid-90s. So. But didn't, didn't Keith she... Gordon direct The Chocolate War? I think he did, yeah. I'm pretty sure he did. Chocolate War is great, if, if mm. you guys haven't seen that. I love, a great book, too. Oh, it's excellent. Great, excellent book, <laughs> excellent movie, excellent all around. Well, maybe I'm wow. misremembering this, Justin, but didn't isn't there like a reach out on that behind the scenes? Didn't she disappear like for real? I for think a that while? I know that and they tried to reach out. For... Doesn't Adrian Pastar like look at the camera and say, "Wait a minute, what?" I, I remember her like looking at the camera and saying, "Like, you know, Jenny, like, you know." Let you know, contact us or whatever, blah blah blah. You don't remember that? Maybe we thought it was so weird, and no. we like looked into it. She she pulled. Yeah, she maybe pulled I, the maybe it's one of those piece. things where I'm misremembering that. But I think that at the time when they did all <laughs> that, she was like literally off the grid or something. Because I just I remember that so well. And if someone <laughs> remembers that, please reach out to us on on our Patreon because I. <laughs> I just I always thought that was really interesting that they that on the actual documentary they kept that in there. It was kind of like a, a like a plea to her to like, you know, let let you know contact them kind of thing. Like she was going through some wow, hard I, times or something. But I, maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm making that up. But I swear to God, I think that's on. The, there. And, uh, this sounds like a Mandela effect situation where it didn't actually <laughs> happen, but you've convinced yourself that that actually. It's, happened. it's kind of funny that Mac remembers seeing the cast directly addressing the camera is like if anyone has information about her and now we're doing the same thing but about like we're going if anyone has yeah, information about has information she had a statement when bill paxton died a few years ago so i'm guessing she's oh she did doing okay yeah um, i'm looking up uh coming soon.net reach out to her and she says she, about bill paxton dying and she wrote back just a message about how much uh she loved him so yeah oh, that's, see there you go happy ending so there you go mac don't worry about it. she's she's okay she's all right well, we've reached the 100-minute mark of the podcast. We should probably talk about the third character of the film at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> so we've talked about him a little bit. Jesse Hooker, played by Lance Henriksen. Heather, you mentioned earlier that he is a former Confederate soldier. He is kind of the de facto leader of the group in a way. He kind of, I think he and 
Diamondback are kind of like the co-heads, the right? Mom and feel of like that. They're yeah. kind of the the mother and father of this group. Yeah, exactly. And I can't imagine Michael being in this role. I'm, I'm happy that's Henriksen. He just has that more of an aged, weathered feel to him. And he's somebody I believe absolutely would have fought in the Confederate, or excuse me, in the Civil War. I'm not saying he would have been a Confederate soldier, but I, I got to get that yeah. feeling from him. And Henriksen's a legend. I mean, I don't even know where to begin on, on him. In this yeah, movie admittedly, I don't have another 100 minutes because we could definitely devout, uh, devote another 100 minutes just to Lance Henriksen. I mean, I think he has like well over 200 credits to his like resume. Uh, and I would say at least half of those are all memorable uh, roles. Um, but I think for me, what was interesting is just coming off of Aliens and, and sort of Bishop becoming you know, this, this, the hero, uh, in a way and seeing sort of this, this fun sort of lighthearted Lance Henriksen and then this ultimately just terrifying, you know, version of him, like as Jesse is, is, is a really interesting juxtaposition between the two characters. Um, you know, and then of course he would go on to like, you know, do Pumpkinhead with Stan Winston, um, sort of playing a, you know, a grieved, uh, an aggrieved father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I really like his Jesse because again, He's a guy who always seems to be about three steps ahead of everybody else. Like, he's always calm, cool, and collected, but he's always calculating, too. Um, Where he already knows what's going to happen before everybody else does. But yet, he's never really, like, sort of, like, throwing it in people. Like, it's just, you can just sense, like, the the wheels are always turning uh, with him. And I, I, you know, and of course him catching the knife in his mouth is like probably one of the most badass things in the movie. And he just sort of spits the blood out and he just kind of <laughs> smiles and you're like, oh man, like now you're in it. <laughs> yeah. Like this isn't the first time this has happened. You could tell, right? No, <laughs> he's like, not again. What do you think about, well, let me ask, what do you think about his demise? When I watched it this time, it felt like almost more of a suicide because I feel like there was a way to get out of that. Like, I feel like they've, they've been in that before, right? I think there was. And then I think they just realized, you know, maybe, you know, because I think if you age it, like if you sort of do the math on it, um, and if he said he was, you know, in the Civil War around 1987, so he's probably about 150 years old at this point. You know, I mean, he's, you know, lived yeah. a few lifetimes at this point. Um, and I think there's something sort of poetic about him and Diamondback's decision just to sort of let let what happens happen. You know what I mean? Like, they could fight it, but ultimately, where are they mm-hmm. going to go, really? You know, because they're in the middle of just sun everywhere. You know, I mean, they can kind of ride it out in the car a little bit, but, you know, at this point, they've lost their family. You know, Severin's gone. Homer's, you know, yeah. done. Yeah. You know, May has run off and sort of rebuked them. So, like, what's left for them at this point? You know, and maybe there's just sort of world weariness, you know, to them at this point. Yeah, that goes back to what Bigelow said about desperately trying to save the family. And like, what, like, what else is there if you don't have family in a way? Uh, Mac, any thoughts specifically on, on Jesse or even Lance Henriksen's yeah, career? I mean, he's, you know, like I said, we, we like, like Heather was saying, we could do a whole podcast just on Lance Henriksen. Like, he's done so many great things. Um, but... I, I really love him in this movie. I uh, just hearing about uh, how he <laughs> apparently he he drove cross country to get to the to the set, 
And when he did, he was kind of he already kind of like dressed up in the role a bit and pick, picked up hitchhikers and kind of envisioned himself as this character already all the way, all the way to Arizona, which is crazy. Um, but I, I I don't know if he did that for uh, for uh, Bishop, but <laughs> but ultimately he called to like a sewer hole know, or something yeah. like that for um, he became months. a robot. No, he became an android. Uh, I love that line. The um, when he closes the bar doors and he says, just a couple of minutes of your time, about the same duration of the rest of your life. <laughs> it's such a great line. Yeah, and some great quotes. Oh, that's such great, a good line. Yeah, I line. love it. Yeah, I mean, um, Dan, I know you're, I, Dan, I know for years you've spoken about how much you hate Lance Henriksen, so I want to know if you want to Hey, what? No way, man. <laughs> if you want to take this moment. No, go love ahead. him. Yeah, I love that Heather Brad Pumpkinhead. I actually think Pumpkinhead is his finest performance, man. That scene where he's mm. holding his dying son. Oh, God. I cried every time I watched that. Anyway, no, he's great. Yeah, he, um, I, I think, I don't know, he, he acts with his eyes in a way that is so cool. And I think it's a really nice contrast to Bill Paxton. Like, I love that you get that they're both pretty evil, but they're evil in very different ways. Um, it's funny because Jesse is also arguably as violent as Severin, but he's just much more composed when he does it, right? And I think you even see that in the way both of them perish. Um, you know, Bill Paxton goes out on this <laughs> like Terminator truck kind of thing that feels so chaotic, and Jesse just slowly drives this this car. And I, you know, thinking back on what our favorite shot is, my favorite shot actually might be on his eyes as he's burning. There's just a determination uh, from him. Yeah, so slow motion shot, yeah. Oh, it's so good. And see, I love how the movie just, I feel like it manages to capture different kinds of evil, and I love that Jesse is, um, I don't know, I keep trying to think of who, who is scarier to me in the movie. I think I'd have to go with Bill Paxton probably just because I mean, such a such a live wire. But yeah, no, I love, fuck you, I don't hate Lance Henriksen. I love Lance <laughs> Henriksen. <laughs> well, Dan, you're not going to look so good. With your face ripped off. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Another shit. great line. Another great line. Can I say? We just do the one-liners the rest of the podcast. Like, ah. well, <laughs> yeah. you, spoke on, um, you spoke on the unhinged nature of the late, great Bill Paxton as Severin. And Catherine Bigelow said this about his performance, which I loved. She says, he has control over that character. It doesn't have control over him. And that's, that really encapsulates like what Bill Paxton brought to so many movies, especially something like, I don't know, Hudson and Aliens, for God's sakes, right? Because that's such a memorable character. It's it's unhinged performance, but it doesn't feel... I don't want... No shots fired, but like, you know, we see like Nicolas Cage movies, and we're like, oh, Nicolas Cage is going crazy again. His performances seem to be different from that. I'm not sure if anybody knows what, what I'm talking about. It just seemed like well, a different Well, they feel way more from, realistic. Like, Bill Paxton yeah. feels... Like, I feel like the way Bill Paxton is in that bar scene is the way I've seen, I, you know, I have high school friends I grew up with who are kind of like that. They're not going to kill a bunch of people, but like that per, that friend who's like drinking a little too much and you're kind of laughing at their jokes, but you're also getting a little nervous about what they're going to do. That's what Bill Paxton brings to that for me. Whereas Nicolas Cage acts like, man, I, I like a lot of Nicolas Cage movies, but I feel like he acts like an alien in all these movies. You know what I mean? Um, whereas Bill Paxton actually feels like, he feels like a type of crazy that you've encountered before. Yeah, Heather, what do you think about about uh, Pax's performance in this. Yeah, as I mentioned, like, before, he, you know, there is definitely, like, sort of that un unexpectedness that comes with, with his performance in this movie um, that makes him, you know, probably the most dangerous member of this group, and there's just, he's he's so brutal. And again, like, when I mentioned, like, you know, when he pulls, you know, he busts his hand through, like, the hood of a semi-truck, which, like, the brute force of that moment and you just see Adrian Pazdar like reacting to that. Like, it's just, you know, that's all of us in that moment where we're like, 
holy shit. Like, this guy is gutting a semi-truck. Um, which, again, I don't know that any other movie I've ever seen anybody other than, like, a Transformer do something like that. Um, so, you know, it's, it, you know, it's so good. Like, you know, it's it's hard to, like, go through and, and think of all of Paxton's roles and try to pick out his favorite. But, you know, pick out your favorites because they're all so great. And they're all so great for different reasons, which, again, I think is, is a testament to who he was as a performer. Um, because I believe him in something like Twister. I believe him in something, you know like near dark i believe in like frailty like there's just there's such a range to it um you know of what he could do and how transformative he was as a performer um yeah i just you know he's 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 for me he is the scariest member of them all because you just you know you don't know if that that light switch is going to go on and if he's just going to gut you or if he's just going to laugh really loudly in your face you know, or if, you know, you just, you just don't know. Um, and I think that's what makes him so much fun to watch. Yeah. Mac, what do you think about Severn in this movie, especially uh, Bill Paxton? Yeah, no, Bill Paxton's awesome. I mean, I love him and in, in, in pretty much everything he's done. I think that he, what he brings to Severin for me is like you, you, the thing about control that you were saying, Justin is spot on because I feel like it all boils back to, for me to that scene when he's like, dressed up real nice he's got his hair done and he's on the he's just like patiently waiting out there for a car to come by with a couple of girls and and is like you know pretty it's an attractive like you know it's an attractive guy he's funny you want you want him in the car you want to be with him and like he is that he is kind of like the only old school esque vampire i feel like you know and he kind of like I just feel like he keys into that and in those moments. And as as wild as he is, somehow he's still not the wild card of the group, who I think is Homer. But like, I, I just feel like for me, he is definitely the scariest of the of the group. But only because well, two things about just, yeah. I'll say two things about that scene. Uh, even though this is a horror movie and it's quite graphic at times, obviously. Like I like how Bigelow doesn't feel the need to have to show us every single brutal murder. You know. Yeah. Like, for instance, like that scene where he picks up the two, or the two women pick him up. You don't see what happens to them, but you know it's going to be something brutal. Like, you don't have to see well, that. And the second thing is, well, go ahead, Mac. I was just going to say, we know what happens to one of the girls in the truck. Because it's Teresa Randall, yeah, but you don't... who went on to be in Spawn, Bad Boys, mm-hmm. and Malcolm X. <laughs> That's, that was my next, that was exactly where I was going. That was my second oh, point. Oh, was I mean, it? Yeah. Uh, I didn't she mean to the... Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, you're good, though. She was, um, she's also the girl six of the movie Girl Six, the Spike Lee movie. So, yeah, she's, she had a nice little run there in the 90s, especially. Mac, you really, you really nailed it. That's exactly where I was going to go. And I have to, like, literally go back to all my notes. Uh, and see sorry. Where I go. Listen, long story short, I was, um... I can't remember the last celebrity death that I was as stunned by than that news. Not to get, not to get, we could go on about this forever too, but I mean, just, I still can't believe it sometimes that he's just, that Bill Paxton's dead. It's just, it's just an insane thing to think about. Uh, rest in peace. We love Bill Paxton. I think that's the best way to sum that up. Um, oh, I, and another thing, but uh, uh, yeah, a couple of lines since we're doing some quotes here. We keep odd hours. Great, great line. Uh, I also love how that offhanded remark that he says, Hey, Jesse, remember when we started that fire in Chicago? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> it's like whether he's being serious or not, like I, 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 I had to bring that up. Coming, you know, being in Chicago, uh, 
Yeah, excellent. Uh, can't well, think Mac, of anyone else in that role. That's great, Mac, but um, there's a fly on the ceiling. It's time to talk about Diamondback. We're talking <laughs> Jeanette Goldstein. Like you said, Heather, what a 180 from her and Aliens to this. And she really is like a chameleon, we think about even the other movies that she's been in. I'm thinking about her her appearance as the foster mother in Terminator 2. And obviously as the, the kind Irish woman in Titanic who's like telling her yeah. kids a, that bedtime story oh before the God. water comes in. Kill me, yeah. That's, really that's great character. Oh, the, yeah. the story about like the land of Tiernanog is there. Oh God, ugh, that scene. Man, Ti- Mac and I watched rewatched Titanic a few years ago when he was visiting <laughs> yeah. Texas. That movie fucking holds up. I don't care what anyone says. Titanic's awesome. It's very <laughs> I good. Love Titanic. So yeah, Heather, do you have any takes on the little known 1997 film Titanic? Um, other than the fact that I saw it like seven times in theaters because I'm that that person. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, I was I was I was totally on the the Titanic train, if if you will. Uh, you didn't want to be on the Titanic ship because that sank. Um, but I was <laughs> I was definitely at a Titanic train. So I, I, I went and paid for it seven different times, bought the VHS. Um, I bought the DVD, but I've never upgraded since then. Um, but I actually got caught up in it last year, like around Thanksgiving. They had it on TV. It might have been like on FX or something like that. And I just realized, I was like, God, I haven't watched this movie like in well over like 15 years. Um, and it's really good. I don't, I'm with you. I don't care what anybody says. I love Titanic. Um, and it's, I just, you know, I think about like what Cameron was able to pull off in that movie and it, and it still holds up. Like it still looks really good and really scary, uh, all with all the stuff with the ship. Um, you know, and it's funny cause like I, I, for such a long time, it was like supposed to be a thing where like you weren't supposed to know actors wore hair pieces, but I guess like Billy Zane has always been like very open about the fact that he just always wears hair pieces unless he's bald for a role. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I forget what it was, but I was interviewing somebody who did effects and he literally in his trunk of his car had a suitcase with all these different like wigs and hair pieces that he just went around with. And he'd be like, what do I need for this? And he would just pull out some random wig and like comb it out. And that was Billy Zane. Wow. <laughs> so, and I never really knew that, I guess. Um, but, you know, so it's funny because it's like always weird to see, I think for me, like to see Billy Zane with hair in that movie. But like now yeah. knowing what I know, I'm like, oh, well, that's obviously fake. So. Well, I was thinking um, about like that character is so rich. He probably, you know, just demanded to have a, a wig. If, yeah. you, if we can look at it that way, right? That's, that's, how, we, that's how we look at Titanic. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Jeanette Goldstein's in this movie. But Jeanette Goldstein is also in Near Dark. And I think Heather illustrated a lot about her earlier, about how she is kind of the mother figure in this movie. And it's funny the way, and I think it's actually almost cruel, but in, a, in an entertaining way, the way that, that, that she and Jesse treat Homer like he's a little boy. Yeah. It kind of adds this real dark edge to who they are. Like, let's, let's not forget that these are bad people. Not only are they killers, but they're probably bad people too. And that dynamic between her and... And Homer is very, it's very interesting throughout the whole movie. I think to to tag on to what Dan had said about his favorite scene being that close up of Henriksen's eyes driving towards Homer, also her in the in the passenger seat. Just all of that in slow motion is such a great sequence altogether. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I do think Jesse and Severin get more to do. I think that's just the way this movie works. I think you can, it's hard to kind of divvy it up. I think in a lot of ways. But she definitely has her moments to shine. Like I did that quote earlier with her with that knife, her throwing the knife, her trying to uh, sneak up, especially on Jesse and May during the climax. Like she's a force of nature. 
in this movie too. She just doesn't, you know, she's, I don't know how, how tall she is, but uh, she feels just as heavy as Jesse and Severin in that regard. I'm not sure if anybody sees what I'm saying there. But, uh, yeah, no, no, totally. I mean, and it's it's the same thing in Aliens, too. I mean, her role isn't enormous in Aliens, necessarily, but you remember her. I mean, Mac and I quote Vasquez, like, all the time. I know. <laughs> like, you always wear <laughs> that, yeah. Gorman. Yeah. What, what did she say? It's, it's like, uh, uh, I just need to know one thing, where they are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just do bad, Vasquez. Just do bad, Vasquez. I love it. Um, uh, yeah, any, any other thoughts on Jeanette Goldstein before we move on to... Uh, this next uh, actor here? I will say uh, what's interesting about Jeanette is she is a very successful uh, lingerie, um, I guess, entrepreneur. Yeah, mm. didn't she have oh, like yeah. she does? Bra- she has bras specifically for uh, like certain sizes or something for, like that? For uh, big bosomed ladies, yes. She actually has nice. a store in California. Um, but I thought that was kind of funny because, like, I guess I never realized like that was something that she had to deal with. Um, and you know, now it all makes sense. But yeah, I was like, hey, that's kind of cool. I only learned that like maybe like about four or five years ago. I was like, look, good for her. Like, she went and branched out and like kind of did her own thing and started her own business, and she's very successful too. So you know, yeah, I remember she was on Matt Gorley's "I Was There Too" podcast, and she talked about that. I forgot all about that, but yeah, that's she's definitely an entrepreneur in that regard. Um. Well, the next character is a very complicated character by the actor Joshua John Miller, who plays Homer. Now, first of all, the nightmare of being an old man in a child's body drives me crazy. Like, that's just, I can't even imagine that nightmare. It's funny that he's actually, Mac, you think you said in the commentary that she said that, she, that he's only 40. I pictured him as being like in his 60s. But I guess to maybe to Lance <laughs> Henriksen, being forty would be would be being still old. being like a child. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, I mean, he's good. I mean, he's goodness. He's he's kind of a little creepy kid in this in a you way. Know, and I, I was going to add a little fun fact um, for those who may not know, because he is the half brother to Jason Patrick. It is kind of fun that they had warring vampire movies in the very same year. Yep, and you know who their father is. Uh, Father Karras. He's father to us all, Father Karras. That's right, Jason Miller. How about that? Dan, you you said earlier that there was a Halloween connection. Is this what you were talking about? No, man. I'm talking about my boy Troy Evans in the movie. Oh, we'll get to him. We'll get to him. Hold it. Hold it. (laughs) All right. No, but um, uh, Joshua John Miller plays one of Dr. Chalice's kids in (gasps) Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Oh, I didn't even know that. I'll have to watch out for that. He had a really bad time of it, as many kids in the Hollywood system did, but he definitely made it on the other side. And another uh, Caffrey tie-in, I saw a movie that he wrote at South by Southwest with Dan's wife, and that movie's called The Final Girl. So, Final Girl, uh, yes. Yeah. Wait, Final Girl or Final Girls? Girls. Which one? The Girls. Oh, wait, he wrote wrote that? Yeah, he co-wrote that. (laughs) <laughs> At first, I thought you meant Justin that Susan was in that movie. I'm like, I don't think Susan's in Final <laughs> yeah. Girls. Like, or that yeah, I, Susan I would have, and I went on a date, and we. Went I would have heard about that. Final <laughs> <Girls>. <laughs> I would have. Oh, Dan, you really missed out on a huge part of your wife's life. But that's the background of this character, though. Or excuse me, of the actor. But let's we need we need to talk about the character a little bit here. I think he definitely gives a performance of a frustrated old man in a child's body. I think he pulls it off yeah. really well. What I love also is that we do get, I, I don't know if it's him consciously taking advantage of 
looking like a child and therefore getting to do child things, or if he somehow has taken on childlike qualities because of his, his stature. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do love that we also, cause yes, I agree. He totally feels more like a frustrated old man, but I love that we get to see him do kids things. Like when they're in the bar, we see him just kind of like dance into the songs and being like, do, do, do. <laughs> like, like it's, it's like, it's interesting because I think he flips back and forth really well. I mean, the, Homer is like the saddest character in the movie to me, even though he's, he does horrible shit. Like even as a kid, I remember just feeling really bad for him. He also uses, you know, his, the, the age that he appears as like, as sort of this lure, like there's a scene where like, he's like, he's off the bike and he's kind of luring yeah. people in to, to, to help him. Um, you know, which any of us, if we were driving along and saw a kid like laying in the street with his bike overturned, like we would all stop cause it's a little kid. Um, yeah. you know, so I think there's something, yeah, I, I, I think he's really fascinating. I'd love to get him together with Kristen Dunst's character from Interview of the Vampire. Oh yeah. Oh, they'd be happy together, right? Yeah. Just, just nothing <laughs> well, but constant complaining. Mayor, really unhappy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's the one that turns May, I think, by, by doing just that. Yeah. Yeah. And Matt, I think, can we say something though? No, uh, but the cool thing about that character is, I mean, think about it. If he, if, if he was turned at that age, that means he didn't have like a life or he didn't go to school he didn't you know maybe i mean i don't know maybe they enrolled in some night classes but like that's why i think that he's so disjointed and weird because he he grew up with these two vampires and all they probably did was like you know mook people and kill them you know like and that's it you know what i mean like like what is his his education is just like on the street over 40 years but he never really grew up he never really learned you know, come, you know, like, I don't know. I feel like it's a really weird dynamic of turning a vampire, of turning a child a vampire. And I think yeah. that, it, that, you know, Joshua sells it the hell out of it. And it, which is cool too, because I, I just watched River's Edge. Oh my God. So right. good. And he's mm. great in that too. And that's, the, and that's actually the thing that Catherine saw that, where she was like, oh, like he's got to be Homer, like that, like he's, he's such so good in that. It was fun to see him pop up in that because I was like, oh god, oh, I know that this guy's capable of. I know what this kid's capable of. You know, like, and, and, <laughs> and little and, do people know he, that he's the actual, he's yeah. the killer in *River's Edge*. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll tell you what, if I uh, if we're ever driving and I see a, a, a passed out kid next to his bike, I'm gonna say. Keep on driving because he might be a vampire. Then you're just gonna run over that kid like Toxic <laughs> Avenger gonna, over here. Kill him! He's a, <laughs> kill him! He's a vampire. Didn't you see Near Dark? Time. Well, we do have some more people to kind of run through here. Look, we can, if anybody wants to chime in, like ever so briefly, please do. But um, yeah, so we've talked about a little bit Sarah, who is uh, Caleb's sister, played by Marcy Leeds. Uh, fun fact: these are the, this is the fun fact section, everybody. So hashtag this up. <laughs> She played the younger version of Barbara Hershey's character in Beaches, opposite Mayim Bialik. Yes. Uh huh. How about that? Fun. fun. Not, not a huge career as an actor. She kind of, you know, child actors, but she had a nice little run there in the 80s. We talked about him a lot, and this is actually somebody who could also have another podcast Tim Thomerson as Loy Colton. First of all, I've never heard the name Loy before, L O Y. I just wanted to make that point. He's um, Caleb's father. Very famous for being in the Charles Band Trancers movies, and of course the titular Jack character Death. in yeah, Jack, great name Jack Death, no no way, and the titular character in Dollman. Um, by the way, all the Trancers movies are currently on Tubi, so <laughs> love have <fun>. Tubi. <laughs> there will be random Tubi. There will be random has, movies. So, uh, I love a Tubi has like. <laughs> 
they've got a couple Sofia Coppola movies and then eight Transfers movies. <laughs> it's just amazing. <laughs> well, no, you know what they had? Um, I'm I'm watching um, uh, Susan. I had already seen it, but Susan watched Blue Ruin and Green Room with me. And uh, what's that director's name? Jeremy Saunier. Is that how you say yes. his name? Yeah. Um, I'm going to watch Hold the Dark. And then he has that one that movie Murder Party. It's like his only other movie. And I'm like, man, where where is this movie? I want to rent it. And then it's for, for free on Tubi. So I'm like, God bless Tubi. Love it. I think it was on yeah. Netflix at one point, too, or maybe Shudder for a while. It was on Shudder. It was on Shudder. Is um, it good? I need to, yeah, I need to watch uh, it. It's my uh, least favorite of his movies, yeah, but not, you know, it's, it's hard to top Green Room and, and and those movies. But okay. Sorry. We got we to march on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it. Dan. You mentioned him earlier. Charlie, Charlie. Charlie. Troy Evans, who <laughs> plays the plainclothes police officer at the bus station in this, obviously played the, the doomed police officer who tried to protect, to protect uh, Jamie in the Myers Mansion at the end of Halloween 5. And, and of course, he's an Ace Sheriff detective. Doom Sheriff hey. from The Stand. He's Roger also, Predactor. I was going to say, he was also on ER for a long time, too, wasn't he? He very well may have been. I, he I don't probably was, him. yeah. Was he just like uh, one of the people at the hospital, or was he? Uh, who do you remember? I'm maybe I'm. Yeah, he was Frank. He was kind of like the guy who was running the desk all the time. Oh, and he oh. worked with uh, Abraham Ben Ruby a lot. Troy Evans still with us, by the way. He was like in something any, recently. I saw him in. He, he, yeah, what same was haircut, it? It, but he's a lot older from what I remember. I love. Believe it or not, he aged in thirty years. Okay. Anytime Troy Evans pops up, love. Always it. happy to see him. Well, let me keep rolling on that front, Justin, with Halloween. Caleb's friend. In the beginning, one of his two friends is Leo Getter, who played Barry Sims in Halloween 6. No. <laughs> Did no not are you kidding me? Did not recognize him. I, looked up, I was shit, looking wow. them up because I, like, I was like, one of these guys has got to be from in, in more things, right? And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> wow. Unbelievable. Well, good job, Mag. That's a good one. Okay. You, you hit the mother more. load there. <laughs> that's, I know, that's, I know. That's going to be how we're going to sell this episode. If you want to know more about Barry from Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, <laughs> check this out. Okay. Cajun truck driver who was just absolutely murdered by May, by the way. Murdered, just murdered and killed. Is Roger Aaron Brown. A lot of character work over the years. Uh, genre fans might know him as James Kahn's partner at the beginning of Alien Nation. Who dies. Oh, and then Mandy Patinkin becomes a new partner. How about this little fun James Cameron connection? Robert Winley plays the the bar patron. Yeah, yeah. In this movie, you get who's like the first person that uh, Severin goes after. He's the biker from T two who gets his clothes stolen by Arnie. Yeah, about that. Oh uh, yeah. And we talked about him, no joke, two hours ago, as the teenage cowboy <laughs> James. Wait, Heather, you you said it was James. Is it James Legro? Is the S silent? It is silent. Yeah. Wow. Did oh, not know wow. that. After all yeah. these years. Yeah, it's funny. I just watched something, and I, God, I'm totally blanking on what it is. Um, but I watched, I was watching this movie, and I was like, God, oh, you know what it was? It was The Beach House, and I was, it's, which is available on Shutter right now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was like, God, this kid totally reminds me of James Legro, and he is James Legro's kid, Noah Legro. Whoa. Really? Oh, that's yes. great. That is crazy. So that was like, I was like, wow, that's such a small world. Um, but yes, I'm a big James Legros fan. Um, you know, so I was one of those retroactively getting to see him in Near Dark always makes me happy. Well, I saw Kelly Reichardt's Meeks cut off, and I swore the entire movie. I thought, if anybody else here has seen that movie, but there's this, yeah. there's this kind of real gruff guy with this huge brown beard, bushy beard, long hair. I was convinced the entire time it was him, but it was actually Bruce Greenwood. I was totally wrong. 
So there you go. <laughs> um, that's my that's my James Lacroix story. Also, Pierre, he's a, in recent years he was in Justified as this kind of like this, this hapless bartender. We talked earlier; he was in Phantasm Two. Um, maybe we didn't mm-hmm. talk about that on this podcast actually, but he was in Phantasm Two. He plays Mike in Phantasm Two before uh, the kid from the first one takes the role back over. A Michael Baldwin. Sweekles. Yeah. There we go. The A stands for actor. <laughs> sure does. Uh, sure does. And uh, he was recently in Support the Girls, which is a pretty good movie that came out a couple years ago. People should check that out. I think it's on Hulu. Oh, actually. the Hooters movie? The... Yeah, basically it's yeah. Hooters, yeah. Um, good drama, though. Good comedy drama. And, yeah, a good character actor. And Wait, you know what? Question for you, though. I can't remember this. In the chaos, because remember, he survives the bar attack, but does he end up blowing up in the cop car? I no, no, I, I think, think so. he gets he away. Live? There you go. Okay, he lives. They show him running away from cowboy. the cop car, and uh, they don't follow up with him. So no, I think I think he lives. Which I, which I was actually really happy, weirdly, because like no one else gets away in the movies. So yeah. I was happy that he's. Well, he became a bartender in uh in Justified. So congratulations to that guy. <laughs> okay, well, those are the characters of this film. You know, we're sticking with the theme here. We try to change the titles every season, and for different types of shows. But we gotta keep with that Freddy audio clip from Freddy's Dead. So this next category is just called Great Graphics. Uh, what do you know? A beat my score. <laughs> well, Heather, as somebody who's literally written a book on the topic, what uh, what stands out to you about the use of special effects in this movie? Uh, I would say probably because they're very natural. Mm. Um, they're, they're, you know, because the 80s, especially, you know, once sort of the 80s effects kind of took off, you know, and that was very much sort of the second golden age of, of practical make, uh, special makeup effects, um, that it's very, they're very understated. Uh, and I think that has a lot to do with Gordon Smith, who I know worked with uh, very closely with Catherine Bigelow in terms of wanting to sort of go with more subdued, um, you know, obviously there was no teeth, you know, nothing like that. And so the, the trauma, you know, that either the characters, that the, the trauma that they inflict on other characters or the trauma that Jesse and Severin and Diamondback ex, uh, experience in the movie, you know, it's very natural. Like, it's almost like it's skin peeling. It's very charred, very dirty. Um, and again, when you think about, like, something like Lost Boys or Fright Night, like, it's, again, the complete antithesis of, you know, of what, um, you know, the effects in those movies were all about. Yeah, Dan, what's your, what's your take on the, on the effects in this? Oh, yeah, I, I completely agree with what, what Heather said. Everything feels, you know how, you, you see a lot of movies where vampires disintegrate or burst into flames or something like that, right? And I liken this how, it, it's almost like they're being charred on a grill, it's just like ash creeping over their body, and I think that plays into the westernness of it. Like it, fe- it like the injuries in this actually feel weirdly more like a western movie. Um, and I was thinking too, it's funny because that bar scene is so violent, but how much blood is there really? I guess it's pretty bloody. Like Bill Paxton slices the dude's neck open with his spurs, and um, we don't really see the waitress's throat get cut, but we see the blood in the. Um, in the cup. I guess I'm saying is I feel like there's less blood that we see spurt and come from victims than there is just blood and grime that gets on the vampires. Like they all get dirtier and dirtier as we go throughout the movie, which just gives it that rugged feel. So yeah, I love it. I think it's great. The only effect that looks even 
borderline fake are those flames on Homer at the end, which, like I said, don't even bother me, really, because it's it's such a slow-motion stylized scene. Yeah, I think it's more important to see his face as totally, opposed to seeing exactly. it on to some smaller stuntman. I understand why they if did they that. If they had, like, a flame suit or something like that. Yeah. yeah so I, yeah. I like that, yeah. Mac, how about you? Yeah, no, I love. I think the special effects are great, and, and because you're only really burning people, and you're only, and you know, or or just like gunshot wounds. You've got uh, the great, great sequence with the shootout in the motel room when the light starts hitting them and they just burst into flames. I think that's so well done. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have anything else to say. I mean, I I think uh, it's just really. Well done. <laughs> well done, special effects people. <laughs> I mean, I think this movie, in, in relation to any other vampire movie, what this movie does best is really capture the severity of sunlight on these vampires. Like, you yes. really... I mean, in other movies, you definitely see vampires burn up and everything else, but this, you can just feel it in this. And something else, in addition to the great, like, gory makeup effects, like the side of Bill Paxton's face, even though it's dark, you can just see how bloodied and mashed up it is. I love that. What I love about this movie the most is just like the dirt and sweat on everybody. And even though, like you said, I think Mac, you pointed out that they actually filmed this in snowy conditions. This movie feels like it takes place in like the middle of hell in June. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or wherever there's bad humidity like right now. And like, and like the makeup in that is so good, especially the ashy look on their faces after they're recovering from being burned. Like that is what yeah. really stands out to me in this movie. The after effects and the punishing nature of what it is to be a vampire. It's not this exotic, romantic life. It's like a harsh reality that you're going to have to kind of deal with for possibly a billion plus years. So, yeah. well, and, anyway, uh, When you say that the, the effects are well done, so are oh, the no. vampires uh, by the end of this movie. You know uh, what I mean? My, am I right, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> my, my mother, folks. My mother, folks. Okay. Um, let's uh, wrap this section on up. And move to a next section called huh, Scene Selection. Have you heard about this videotape that kills you when you watch it? What kind of tape? A tape. A regular tape. People run it. I don't know. We start to play it, and it's like somebody's nightmare. Well, I think we kind of covered this earlier. This is when we're going to talk about our favorite scene from the movie. And mine is very simple. It's uh, two words. Uh, we'll say three words. The bar scene at the 40-minute mark. That's that's my favorite scene of the movie, personally. Heather, what about you? Uh, I would definitely have to go with the bar scene too. Like bar scene too. Yeah, I mean, if you were like, because growing up, one of my favorite movies was Tyranny Isles, where like you showed off like all the different clips from movies. And if I was making Tyranny Isles post Near Dark, this is like the one scene that I would absolutely like insist like it has to be in there because it just really represents, I think, what Near Dark is all about. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's why it's it's so damn good. Finger looking good. It is. You might say. <laughs> I might say. <laughs> <laughs> you might say. One might say. Uh, Mac. Yeah, the bar scene. Easy. I mean, I do love that shot in the beginning with Caleb walking and starts smoking and stuff. It's so weird mm. against the Western backdrop. But the uh, the bar scene as a whole is just hands down the most memorable part of this, of this film. And uh, rightly so. Daniel. Oh, man. I think I'm going to have to go with the blood transfusion scene. No, I'm just kidding. The bar scene. Of course. Yeah, no. I mean, it's funny because I think a lot of times when we get to this section, um, especially with the Friday the 13th movies, there's like a bunch of different scenes that you could say, right? Like you might be like, oh yeah, I love, I do love that scene, but I'll, I'll say this scene instead. So we get a, a wider representation of the movie. 
but how could you not say the bar scene? I mean, it's the centerpiece of the film. I mean, I love everything. Else. I love all the other scenes in the movie. I love the final scene and everything too. But I mean, that bar scene is just, it's like the thing everyone remembers. Like I said, it's that it's kind of a template for Tarantino. I'm always a sucker for scenes with villains who are making one liners without really the intent of making people laugh. Like I don't think Bill Paxton's actually trying to make anyone laugh. And he, he almost delivers it in a way where he knows he's being creepy. Like he's harassing people with these weird one liners. I think everything is just perfect in it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's gotta be the bar scene. Hands it's down. funny. Cause if you um, take out the closing credits, I think there's 40 minutes of the movie, 12 minutes of the bar scene, and then 40 minutes and the movie's over. I think that's how it ends up. It like literally out. is the center of the, yeah, it's the centerpiece. Yeah. It really Pretty is. Wild. It's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah, it's it's like I said, it's just, it's the best one. So what can I say? Well, I think we've been in the video store long enough. It's time to head out uh, and check out. Get him out of here. Bye. I'll fix you, Venkman. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to get you a nice fruit basket. I'm going to miss him. All right. All right. Okay, so this is the section where we're going to basically say goodbye to everybody. But before we do that, we're going to give our rating. And we'll just do it to keep it simple because there are going to be so many different types of movies and we don't have to do it for every type of movie. Let's just do it from a scale of uh, one to five stars. Keep it simple there. And Heather, as our guest, would you like to, to kick off with a, your, your, your brief Twitter-capped review of Near Dark and your, your star rating? Ooh, I don't know if I could keep it to 140 characters, uh, but I'll try. I'm going to type it out while you're speaking. Oh, my gosh. You'd be like, you stop <laughs> no, talking no, right no. there. Um, yeah, I, you know, I would say in, in an era of you know, sort of glossy, fun, rock and roll vampires, I think Near Dark is a completely different beast uh, of a film. And, you know, for me, I think it's it truly is one of the best vampire movie film movie films. Wow. <laughs> uh, it is one of the best uh, vampire films, I think, that we've ever seen. Um, I for me, I would give it I would give it. A, can we do halvesies? Are we allowed to do halvesies? Yeah, sure. I, I would probably give it like four and a half out of five just because of that damn transfusion scene at the end. Hey, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Four and a half out of five stars, Dan Caffrey. What do you got? It's funny you want stars, Justin, because that actually does tie to the movie a little bit. Oh, you're right. Things. See, you know what? It was go. deliberate. Yeah. This whole thing was deliberate. A billion years later, somebody <laughs> will find our star ratings for Near Dark. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's so tough. I, I'm, I'm really tempted to go four and a half because of the transfusion scene because it, do, it just does knock it off a little bit. But, you know, I'm just going to stick with five because... Because I, I can't think of another movie that's quite like this, even other vampire western hybrid movies, which there are a few of them. Um, it just feels so ballsy and different, and and has really aged well. So yeah, I gotta go. Uh, I'm gonna, man, I, I kind of want to go four and a half. I'm gonna go five. I know if you it should go, go four and a half. half. I promise you, it'll be okay. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I know. I'll I'll just do five. I'll I'll, I'll right. do five. Keep it simple. Five yeah. stars. It is Mac. <laughs> Uh, for me, it's four and a half. Uh, it's just that transfusion. I know the, <laughs> it's just that that's the one thing that always stuck with me. Um, but, uh, that, that just knocked it off a little bit there, but, uh, the rewatch was super strong. It's, I, it is definitely up there in my top vampire films, uh, for sure. Definitely top 10, if not top five. It is very singular. Uh, I feel like they've there there've been a lot of West, you know, like from the, the from the entire from Dust Till Dawn series and all that stuff, you know. But uh, I, I just you know that doesn't do it for me as much as this. Um, and uh, I'm gonna go ahead and give it four and a half uh, stars. Um, 
I'm longingly looking at those stars. <laughs> longingly looking at the stars. <laughs> uh, this is, yeah, I mean, it's such a tough one. But, uh, again, Fright Night, Fright Night for me is just, that's a five out of five. And I can't, I can't quite go there with this movie. As, as you said, Omeka, there's a singular experience. It, it hasn't aged as, I want to say as poorly as some of those other 80s ones have. No, I'm going to say it. it hasn't aged as poorly as those other 80s movies has. I think because there's really just a score in this, and then there's bar music. And that music is, is the same music you would probably hear at a bar today. Like, it, nothing's really changed in that atmosphere. And it's so dark, and everything kind of just takes place at night. And there are still hotel rooms that look like that. There are still planes that look like that. And there are still people who wear bolos and who, who like wear white dress shirts like Bill Paxton does in this movie. Like, like it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like it necessarily takes place in 1987. And I think that that works in its favor. I, uh, I love it. It's probably my favorite Catherine Bigelow movie. It's between this and actually between this and Strange Days. And then, you know, Point Break, like right below that. So I'd have to say I'm going to give this movie four stars and about five of Severin's pressed white dress shirts look terrific. <laughs> and um, one of Jesse's guns. And um, that's my official star rating. Right <laughs> <laughs> down. The longest one. <laughs> that was more of a Twitter thread. I should have put like the one slash, two slash, three slash, and slash. Well... This has been a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, again, for listening to our very first episode of The Rental. We will be back again next month with a brand new movie. What will it be? Who knows? But uh, be sure to check out the rest of our Patreon page. For more goodies you can have, it just depends on what uh, tier you decide to uh, sign up for. And, Heather, thank you so much for being our guest on this episode. This has been a lot of fun. I, I feel like you guys just, like, made this episode for me so thank you i you know it was like when i was asked to do something on your dark and i was like are you kidding me of course so i appreciate it um you know i was it's always a pleasure to get to chat about near dark uh and get to chat horror in general so i really appreciate the uh the invite and the fun discussion i have it's interesting because like you always think like sometimes when you do these things like you don't have anything new to take away from it but i do and so i really appreciate that well at the end of the day no matter how much we know about this movie for the all the decades I did not know that the radio jockey from uh, this jockey from Halloween Curse of Michael Myers is in this. So you still learn. My life will never be the same. I really won't. <laughs> it's amazing. I love that takeaway. We were all literally like, holy shit. I had no idea. It was genuine. I was too. ready was to go like run in the other room and turn near dark on because I needed to see it for myself. So, well, well, there's one more thing, Heather. Now, you also have just, I believe this is going to be going out and you'll, you'll have just started a new podcast, correct? Uh, yes, we just recently launched. Um, I, I do a special show uh, through Corpse Club with Patrick Bromley, who runs F This Movie. And we do a show through Corpse Club called Horror BFFs. And I think just because when we were kids, one of the things that sort of brought us together was the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, and we're talking like over 30 years ago because we're both old. Um, so like we were, you know, when you're talking about like deaths that hit you hard, like Bill Paxton was a big one. Wes Craven is still one that really... Um, I kind of still get choked up when I talk about, 
Um, And because he was just such a a huge influence on me as who I became as like not only just a, a horror movie fan, but just a film fan in general. And so we were like, you know, I was just jokingly around. I was like, we should do this thing where we just talk about Craven movies. And he was like, okay. Um, so yes, yeah, so we just recently launched uh, a little podcast series called Craven Craven. And right. um, we, st- we started off really light and fun uh, and decided to do Last House on the Left, the original. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we were oh, like, let's yeah. let's let's do something that, you know, that you can bring the kids in to listen to, um, you know. So <laughs> I was like, and now we're going to go into like the nihilistic fun of, you know, the hills have eyes. So but we are doing uh, episodes uh, once a month. So because we, you know, he has a site to run. I've got a site to run. So, you know, I'd love to do it weekly, but I just don't think logistically it would work out. Um, but, yeah, I'm just really excited to sort of dive in to all of Craven's films. Um, I think we're even doing one of his uh, more lascivious. I, I don't know. I don't know. How, you know. The nice way to say porn, I guess, is the best way to put it. Uh, adult film. Yeah, I guess. Uh, sure, yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, we're you're doing music of the heart. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. I know. My, one of my mom's favorites. Right. Yes. Gloria Stefan really went wild in that movie. She did. Unbelievable. I know. I can't believe. I hear it's good. I, I, I'm surprised it didn't get the X rating. Uh, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so it's just it's it's really fun. It's sort of a geeky project of ours. Um, but the response so far has been really nice. Um, so I'm really excited about that, but yeah, so I just thought it was, you know, kind of time to sort of, uh, dig in all of the Craven stuff that I've been wanting to kind of talk about. So, well, not to put you on the spot, but for this season, we're doing Friday the 13th and Halloweenies. So, uh, whoever was not on the Freddy versus Jason episode for our Elm street season will be on the <laughs> Friday the 13th season <laughs> episode. So maybe we could have you back. I would love uh, that. to talk about that. That'd be great. That'll be later on this year. I think we're calling it. New Line November, because we'll be doing that. And uh, Oh, no, I guess New Line November would be... No, that's still New Line, right? Yeah. Anyway, long story short, by the end of the year, hopefully we can have you back on for that. That would be awesome. That would be fantastic. I would love to. And uh, again, this has been a lot of fun, everybody. Thank you so much for subscribing to Patreon. Please be sure to spread the word about our page. We really do appreciate it. We love everybody out there. And as I'm saying all this, I realize we don't have a sign-off. So what uh, would be a good sign-off that would be that would have something to do with a video store? Does anybody have any idea? Be kind, rewind. Like, that's the winner, folks. Yeah. So everybody out there, be sure to be kind and rewind. He's at the staircase. He's at the staircase. He's in the kitchen, can't see his eyes. He's at the front door. He's at the front door. He's in the backyard while the laundry dries. This is the end of our show. For now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more.